I own an island off the coast of Costa Rica. I've leased it from the government and I've spent the last five years setting up a kind of biological preserve. Really spectacular, spared no expense. And there's no doubt our attractions will drive kids out of their minds. And not just kids, everyone. There's a particular pebble in my shoe represents my investors. Says that they insist on outside opinions. What kind of opinions? Well, you're kind not to put too fine a point on it. I mean, let's face it, in your particular field, you're the top minds. And if I could just persuade you to sign off on the park, you know, get your endorsement, maybe even pen a, a wee testimonial, I could get back on schedule. Uh, schedule. Why would they care what we think? What kind of park is this? It's right up your alley. Welcome to the Three Men in a Retrospective podcast, Jurassic Park Retrospective Series. Boy, am I glad to see you. Join Garrett. Hey, girl, you miss me? Matt. Your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could that they didn't stop to think if they should. And Adam. You're the new guy, right? Yeah. You ever wonder why there was a job opening? As they take a tour of one of cinema's most popular franchises. Welcome to Jurassic Park. Does Garrett still wish death upon cinematic children? Anybody hear that? Will Matt make more enemies than out-of-reach dino food? Nobody move a muscle. And where does Adam stand? on yet another film series started by the beard. We're going to have to adjust to new threats that we can't imagine. Find out the answers to all these questions and more on this podcast, 65 million years in the making. What an asshole. Courtesy of Percolated Media. And remember, if something chases you... Welcome to Jurassic Park, released June 11th, 1993. Budget on this, coincidentally, $63 million. Box office on its initial run, $914 million. It's eventually grossed $1.46 billion. We'll talk about how that's happened. And this is directed by, because Goudreau apparently wants us to do his entire career in this one year, Mr. Steven Spielberg. We're back to the beard, boys. We've done Indiana Jones. Go back to those podcasts. It didn't end the way I would have liked it to. But here we are. We are going back to the Jurassic period. I cannot believe that we are doing Jurassic Park. But, Goudreau, why don't you explain why we are doing Jurassic Park? Well, I'll begin by saying that when we first came to this new site, we had no intention, really, of revisiting franchises that have been covered on the old site. But two things have happened. Number one... The ones that we've done so far, Indiana Jones and now this, neither Adam or myself were on those shows. So in talking with Garrett, it didn't seem like we were going to be regurgitating the same conversations that Garrett had had with his co-hosts then. You just have to remember what Garrett's opinions were. And quite frankly, it's been a long time since you recorded those shows. That was 2018 when you did those. So it's been a good five years. So we had time on our side. On that front, and also it's been 30 years since this came out. So I figured it was as good a time as any if we were ever going to do Jurassic Park. Even with a new one coming out last year, none of us cared enough, quite frankly, to 
<laughs> to, to put it on the schedule because we were thick in Predator at that point. So the stars have aligned. We had some spots to fill. And I said, you know what? Why don't we just do it? Because Adam and I have never really talked about these movies. And none of us have really talked about the latest Jurassic World movie once we get to that. So doing this right after Indiana Jones made complete sense. When we had done the schedule a couple years ago, you had outlined this. We both looked at it and we were just like, man, it's going to be really fun to actually do Indy and Jurassic Park back to back. I'm looking forward to it. Now, before we get to you know everything that we get to when we talk about these movies, I want to ask you guys this. Are you guys dinosaur fans? Man, as a child, there was nothing cooler than learning about dinosaurs, putting together models, you know, learning that whole stuff there. As a mid-40s adult, though, man, there's nothing cooler than dinosaurs <laughs> and putting together models and seeing how they are. There's a meme that goes around that's like, you know, as, as a kid, everybody always asks you what your favorite dinosaur is. We need to bring that back. And I agree, because I can still talk about dinos to this day. What I love, what I don't, what's my favorite, why are they cool? So, yeah, dinosaurs are those type of things that seem a mythical creature, but they're real. And I think that's one of the beautiful things about it. Life found a way in my case because I was born the year this movie came out. And as a result, my generation is sort of both jokingly referred to and factually referred to as a Jurassic generation. Because of this movie and the hoopla that it caused... My age demographic were responsible for a rise in dinosaurs being interesting again and paleontology becoming an actual increased career field for a lot of people around my age. And I think this movie is the, the big reason why dinosaurs are, are big for us and for me specifically. It was because of this movie and it was because of going to Universal when I was a kid and had the Jurassic Park River Adventure ride still there. And being able to see animatronic dinosaurs up close, granted, not quite up to par as far as the movie goes, but still look pretty convincing. And for 1999 animatronics, now they're a little bit more run down on the Florida side. So I was I was the perfect age for this retrospective because they all came out when I was young enough to, you know, love dinosaurs and not be too scared of what these movies had to offer. And that by the time Jurassic World came out. It was really appealing to people's nostalgia, specifically my age, of, hey, remember Jurassic Park? Well, we're going to bring it back to its original conceit, both in the movie and in a meta-contextual way. Yeah, that ride is... I remember I went on that ride when I went to Halloween Horror Nights. They had that ride open. And the only reason we went on that ride was to fucking just deflate a little bit and just think, okay, let's just relax because we've been walking around so much <laughs> on that park. And the fact that they kept that open at night and they they lit those dinosaurs the way they did, yeah, they don't look great. But myself, massive dinosaur fan as a kid. Massive. Well, yeah, because you love pro wrestling. So like Ric Flair, <laughs> they were all, they're all fucking dinosaurs. Even before that. This was before I even got into wrestling. I, it's so funny that you know we're eventually going to get to another series this guy spearheaded. And it's fitting because the, my two obsessions as a kid 
or dinosaurs and sharks. There were dinosaur specials on ABC at night. Adam, you remember those those days? Everybody would theorize, how did the dinosaurs actually die? What happened to them? Was it a plant that poisoned them? Was it a meteor that hit? All these theories went by, and, and I saw these specials on this, and I had classes that we had rhymes. We had songs that we sang about these dinosaur periods. I, I still have one in my head to this day day and i always thought about them and i'd get dinosaur figures and i would reenact fights with t-rexes and stegosauruses and allosauruses and all of them i I was obsessed with them i had books on them i had coloring books on them massive massive dinosaur fan now as i got older you know i I moved on to other things (laughs) like Matt mentioned wrestling and other things and and dinosaurs just kind of took a back seat and at one point you know we'll talk about this when we get to Jaws eventually but I was even going to be a marine biologist I loved sharks so much so it's just fitting that we're talking about Spielberg and he had been the at the forefront of both these franchises let's talk about this book now this book was released in 1990 I read it in the lead up to this I, I believe I got it for my birthday one year my mom got me the one with the actual movie cover on it and I devoured it I read it in high school right when I was doing my whole king phase as well in the lead up to this film I'd already read it before I went to this movie and I liked the book didn't love it I remember now I haven't reread it since but Goudreau you have read it in the weeks leading up to this what what did you think of it so I read it for the first time I had never read it before and I knew we were going to do this so if there was ever a time I was going to sit down and read the book by both the similarities and the differences. This is not a straightforward page-for-page adaptation of the book, despite the author having a hand in the screenplay. There are some considerable changes, both to characters, to some of the plot dynamics, to the the beginning and the ending of, of both. So if you're a fan of this movie, I do recommend that you read the book. And if you're not a fan of the movie, maybe you should read the book. You'll probably like it better, depending on what your interests are oh my god there were so many changes in in this process and we're going to go over them as we go over the book as we go over the film adam what about you have you read this book i haven't and i'm kind of surprised i haven't at this point it's the type of subject matter uh, especially with the science versus you know destruction that you think i'd be into i met michael Crichton a good 25 years ago i think at this i remember when you did 27 maybe i did uh i worked uh, movie screenings for for uh, market research, and I met him at Disclosure of all things. <laughs> so, no, we're not reviewing that. No, um, he was a very very nice gentleman. So a number of his books are ones that I keep meaning to and never have any of them. So I'm going to have to get around to them because the subject matter that he decides to discuss is stuff that's right up my alley to read. I'm shocked you haven't read this. This is right up your alley. Yeah. Honestly, let's talk about, all right, like I did with Indiana Jones, I'm going to talk about the Beard's career up to this point. His career was slightly derailed leading up to this film. He had just done Hook. Hook was not well received. I did not even watch that movie in its initial run, and I watched everything Spielberg had done. But by that point, I was a teenager, and I didn't want to really go to a movie with Peter Pan as as an adult. I just didn't care about that. And that movie did not make too much money. No. (laughs) <laughs> Despite having Robin Williams in it, you thought it uh-huh. would have been a bigger draw than it was. And Julia Roberts. For the record, I, yeah, I watched it yeah. not too long ago. I think it was on whatever ABC Family is called now. And I, and I watched it because I have not seen it in a very long time. And I'm a notorious Spielberg critic. I got to say, the first half of that movie is actually pretty good. I would even say great. Until he becomes Peter Pan again. And then it turns into flaming garbage. 
because I like Robin Williams playing the asshole father, which it's a Spielberg movie, no shit. Of course, mm-hmm. that's the dynamic they wrote. And then he just does his shtick for the second half of the movie, and it becomes kidified. The best thing in that movie throughout, though, is Dustin Hoffman. Mm-hmm. He is so committed to that performance, and he plays off Bob Hoskins really well. He's one of the best Captain Hooks we've had in, in media, but the movie as a whole has two flaws. That and I, I don't know who thought Julia Roberts as Tinkerbell was a good idea. Because she was the biggest Uh, box office sensation at that point. She had just done Pretty Woman, Matt. Yeah, and I wanted to throw a mystic pizza (laughs) at her and toss her her into the lagoon because she she is sort of the equivalent of Kate Capshaw. On She's pretty bad in it. Yeah, just, but but I, yeah. I do see where they were coming from when they cast her. And Spielberg's even said that she was a nightmare on that set, too. Like, she, she was not oh, fun I, to be around. I, I, yeah. um, having said that, I, I do think it's bottom tier Spielberg, but I don't think it's his worst movie. Yeah, you know what? I watched it for the very first time probably two, three years ago. And I agree. I, I completely agree with you. I think the beginning is actually pretty good. It just falters. But like you said, Destin Hoffman's a major highlight of it for me as well. But if we were to give it our scale, I would give it a probably about a six and a half just for that first half, maybe a seven. And hey, unlike this movie, he, he did kill a kid in it. So that's a point for me. Yeah. He also in Hook cast kids who could that's not That's true act. too. Uh, Talk about a Gilbert Hallmark. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I picture like a, a teenage slash 20-year-old Henry Thomas watching that mm. movie and just, he has like an aneurysm. <laughs> Adam, have you seen Hook? I never have, ever. Though I'll say, I'll, I'll give it credit because it seems to have a big cult following year after year that continues to grow. And it seems really to have been the kickstart for What If Peter Pan Grew Up that is kind of the impetus for all Peter Pan movies nowadays. So as much as Hook is kind of reviled, I think it is... It, that movie almost has its own genre underneath it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's sort of the trend of like revisiting old fairy tales in new context. Because it was right around that time they did a Snow White movie with Sigourney Weaver as the yeah. evil yeah. queen. They had done. They were doing classic literature too. Like they brought back Dracula, they brought back Frankenstein, but with big names. Mm-hmm. It seemed like that trend was very much in vogue at the time. Oh, God, De Niro, Frankenstein. Mm. <laughs> well, yeah, like De Niro, Frankenstein, they did Dra- Bram Stoker's Dracula with Francis Ford Coppola directing in an all-star cast. Oof. Oh, I, I love that yeah, movie. Don't, don't, I'm, don't, I'm, don't be oof in that movie. I, the acting is um, 50-50. Yeah. Some, people, some people are light years ahead of the other. <laughs> the other. <laughs> Keanu Reeves gets a lot of shit. I think Winona Ryder is even worse. Ooh, Ooh fighting words. So there was a bidding war for this film, even before the novel was even released. People saw things, you know, like Spielberg had been working with Crichton already because they were developing a new project called ER. It was going to be a film. And when, when Spielberg asked him what he was doing next, Crichton jokingly said, I'm writing the most expensive movie ever made. And so Spielberg was like, what's that? And when he gave him, the, and when he gave him what he was doing, Spielberg was like, hmm... That's pretty cool. <laughs> you know, Spielberg was up for maybe bidding for this. So while this was being written, Warner Brothers and Tim Burton, Columbia and Richard Donner, 20th Century Fox and Joe, and Joe Dante, they all kind of formed sort of a bidding war for the rights. And coming at the rear was James Cameron. He was going to do it. But Spielberg and Universal, they ended up acquiring the rights for $1.5 million dollars. Cameron's funny because he said if you were going to do this, it would basically be Aliens 2. And he would have cast like Arnold Schwarzenegger <laughs> as Grant, Bill Paxton as Malcolm. And it would have just been a very violent 
get to the Raptor. <laughs> and he said, I think the right man won this war because I, I would have tur- not turned it into the commercial success that it was. Yeah, he also would not have gotten away with a PG-13 moniker. He would have said, no, that, that's that. what I'm, Yeah, absolutely. You know, that, that group of bidding auctioneers is very interesting when you look at Richard Donner was still yeah. a big thing because he had a lot of cachet with Lethal Weapon. Tim Burton was on mm-hmm. the come up. It's surprising Tim Burton didn't get it, considering how much of a success Batman yeah. was. You think that Warner Brothers would have thrown the book, but you know Spielberg still had, even at this time, you know he's still the biggest commercial director out there. So I'm not surprised, but I wonder how history would have changed. Now, like we could see our own broken off timeline, because you got to remember, there's also this was the first time he was working on two movies simultaneously. Yeah, yeah I'm getting to that. Let's yeah. let's talk about that. So, like I said, Spielberg's career was kind of in a downturn. And he went to Sid Sheinberg and he said, all right, I have a passion project I want to do really bad called Schindler's List. And Sheinberg said he would greenlight that, but he had to do Jurassic Park first. And so Spielberg agreed to that. And you're right. This is the first time we would ever see Spielberg go on and and do pretty much two projects at the same time. And the, the reason, uh, despite being a passion project, Spielberg had tried to give Schindler's List to mm-hmm. other people. Because of the commitment of Jurassic Park, like he tried to give it to Roman Polanski, but his mother was a hol- was a Holocaust victim, so he's like, "Look, I-, I lived it, basically, so I don't want to do it." He offered it to Scorsese, yeah. but Scorsese said, "I'm an Irish Catholic, <laughs> and you're 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 you know you're an Orthodox Jew. Like I think a Jewish filmmaker should make this movie." And they eventually compromised because Spielberg said, I have the rights to the Cape Fear remake if you mm-hmm. want to do that. So so it's very funny. Spiel- Spielberg, when he, when he uh, started kind of storyboarding this, he, he cited Godzilla as a major influence and has even said when he initially took the project on, it was kind of his way of making a sequel to Jaws, except on land, because he had actually turned Jaws 2 down. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> but he didn't turn down Jurassic Park. Well, we'll get there. Oh. He uh, decided on, on approaching it by using animatronic effects. And he brought in Stan Winston and Phil Tippett. And we have spoken about both those gentlemen on this podcast. And you can see the test they came up with, specifically early versions of the kitchen stocking scenes. And you can see those, those scenes online. Let's just say they weren't too convincing. No. But I'll say, as, as we get into the discussion of this movie, I would recommend for anybody, there's a documentary on industrial light yep. and magic that's now on Disney+. Plus. Watch the episode that goes through Jurassic Park. And goes through those years and the differences and how it that alone and watching what they went through and the differences and Phil Tippett compared to Spaz that that sequence that episode is astounding to watch in conjunction with the movie we're discussing today. Not just animatronics; they had predominantly conceived it with stop motion. Yeah, doing that for the dinosaurs, but I, that that process is so time consuming that. They, they would not have been able to meet the deadline. They, they would still be working um, on it if they did it that way. And, and Tim Burton said, you fucking <laughs> It's funny, little known fact, Adam, you speak about that documentary. You know who's seen in that documentary for like a split second, but he did work on this film. He did work on the animatronics for it. The basis from Tool. He worked on this and he worked on Nightmare on Street Part 5. <laughs> yeah, wow. kind of funny. Spielberg was unconvinced by these tests. And then Dennis Muren came around and he's like, you know what, we did this little movie called T2. And um, I think that if we were to build these dinosaurs digitally, you might be able to do this project convincingly. So Spielberg asked him to prove it. 
They went to animal parks to study movements of rhinoceroses and elephants and giraffes. And they even took mime classes to understand all their movements. And what they came up with, again, you can see all these tests online. It's pretty remarkable. They have a just a slight test of a T-Rex running. And Adam, you mentioned this. You know, you mentioned that documentary. They show that in the documentary as well. Pretty convincing. And this is what finally convinced Spielberg that he they were ready to take this project on. Yeah, and it's where they, you know, the the work of really creating the joints and movement uh, and adding weight to something and it moved around and the work that they did and that they would stay up. I mean, they basically lived in this place. It was like a party palace. They had one entire room just to drink and eat and party, and then that was separate from all the offices, even though they were all connected. So they'd work all day, party all night, go right back to working on it, and this this group that was doing the computer works were just like we want to see if we, we want to prove we can do it we want to prove we can do it and it's not for this movie it's i mean t2 was done but the effects in that as amazing as they are are not from start to finish throughout that movie this is and even here they're not but it is such a gigantic leap forward in the technology and what it meant to the movie industry yeah, it's- for somebody so steeped in history as as uh, Spielberg and Kennedy as much as she's reviled, you know, today, you know, most successful producer in history, but for her to be working hand in hand and to be deciding right along that this is the future, no pun intended, and where it needed to go is pretty astounding. Yeah, they they still only make up about 15 minutes of this film, so it's not like they, they consume it. Right. But their presence is definitely, you know, bigger than, like you said, as in, as in T2, which also had a lot of effects. Yeah. So it's funny because after these tests and... Phil Tippett had seen what these, uh, what the, what, what had been done. You know this, and the, the tests specifically were of the T Rex chasing the Gallimimus. Tippett and Spielberg had an exchange that fam- that Spielberg famously put in the script. Uh, Spielberg looked at Tippett, and he was just like, "Well, I guess you're out of a job." And Tippett replied, "Don't you mean extinct?" <laughs> that exchange in this movie is as, as a result of this uh, exchange, which I thought was kind of fun. So after acquiring the rights from Crichton for $1.5 million, they paid him another 500000 and points on the film to write the film's script. And like I said, Matt, anyone who's read the novel will tell you it's rather extensive, and Crichton toned down a lot of the exposition and violence that's in that book, but was only able to include about 20% of it. Uh, Spielberg then brought in the writer of Hook to touch it up, and she actually created a version that merged the characters of Malcolm and Grant. Everything was changed in that script, which I don't know. I don't know if you can merge those characters. They're two different, <laughs> two total different characters. No, part of that's got to start to be a cost consideration when you're putting the majority of your money into effects and that kind of work. You know, you gotta you gotta thin down the story. You gotta thin down the characters because every character you eliminate saves you a couple million. So it's understandable, but. Yeah, I mean, it, I think it's wise that they got Crichton on board because you get the heart of the story, but there's sizable changes from what I understand. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of amazing to think because I think Spielberg would also be an amazing choice to do another big screen adaptation of Westworld. After these scripts ended up being kind of all over the place, Spielberg brought in our buddy, Matt, David Kep. He brought him on fresh off Death Becomes Her. Kep was brought in to kind of work the final draft, and Matt, we'll get into it as we discuss the plot, but it's safe to say that after all these once-overs, a few of these characters are much different than their novel counterparts, aren't they? Well, the ones that made it to yeah, the screen. <laughs> so let's talk about casting. William Hurt was offered the lead of Grant, and Kurt Russell and Richard Dreyfus they were considered, although Russell was considered too expensive, believe it or not. 
Oh. And famously, Harrison Ford was also offered the role, but he turned it down. Of course yeah. he was. <laughs> <laughs> After all these actors turned it down, they ended up with Sam Neill with re- literally weeks left before filming. I don't know. I, Matt, what would you think? Uh, Kurt Russell as Ian Mal- as uh, Grant? The funny thing is none of them match the description of Grant in yeah. the book. Because he's described, and I'm paraphrasing, as a burly mountain man of 40 with yep. a beard. Uh, and look, Sam Neill was not exactly a draw. I mean, he had big roles in Hunt for Red October. He was the main villain in uh, uh, Memoirs of an Invisible Man. He was in the piano. He was a respected actor, but whether it was before or after this movie, Sam Neill's name doesn't draw no. dollars. As for Ian Malcolm, someone auditioned who the casting director loved by the name of Jim Carrey. So I can totally see that. Me too. Actually. But the funny thing is, he's not an... In the context of the book, he's not an overly comedic No, character. he does monologues. That's all he does. Yeah, he does a lot of talking, a lot of exposition comes from mm-hmm. him. And if you, let's see, Jim Carrey would have been significantly cheaper at that time than even a year yeah. later if they had waited to make this movie. Positively. I do think that the calm down, the tempered Jim Carrey would be a great fit for that role. Could he have done that the exposition, though? I don't know. You look at something like, um, uh, what was the one where he was, it was a secret on t- the one with Ed Harris. Truman Show. Uh, the Truman Show. I think that Jim Carrey would be a great choice for mm. Malcolm. But early on, Spielberg loved the idea of putting Goldblum in this role, and he was pretty much Spielberg's choice from the beginning. As was Laura Dern. He had just seen her in Rambling Rose and really liked her and thought she would, she'd fit this role. She had a star-making role of mm-hmm. Velvet, so I pictured David going, oh, cast her, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> but when Dern got busy, they offered the role to Julia Binoche, a role from completely from the 90s that we never heard from again, and Robin Wright, who both turned it down, and, and Gwyneth Paltrow and Helen Hunt, they both auditioned for it. I can see Helen Hunt. I'm glad neither of them appear in this movie. I, I am not a Gwyneth Paltrow fan, and the less I say about Helen Hunt, the better. <laughs> it's funny. I could see Helen Hunt auditioning for it, but I think Laura Dern is a more enjoyable, a, a better presence of Helen Hunt. She, she's a good twin. <laughs> <laughs> but in the end, Dern actually ended up with the part. In the role of the kids, Christina Ricci, she had auditioned for Lex, but Ariana Richards was cast after her scream was deemed the best. And then Joseph Mazzello, he was cast because when he auditioned for Hook, he was deemed too young. But Spielberg promised that he would work with him on a future project. I would say Mazzello won that war. (laughs) (laughs) As for the part of Hammond, Spielberg, this was interesting when I read this. Really wanted Sean Connery. But, of course, Sean Connery probably didn't even read the script. And he turned it down. I think he was busy, uh, he, you know, busy doing medicine, man. <laughs> so, so he went to Richard Attenborough, who... <laughs> it's a weird choice because, A, he hadn't acted in 15 years, or 14 years when he got this. And, B, Attenborough had beat Spielberg at directing when <laughs> E.T. was out and uh, up for those ro- yeah. awards. Uh, he directed Gandhi and beat him for the Academy Day. <laughs> nice to know Spielberg doesn't hold a grudge. And that's even funnier, considering how the character of Hammond in the movie drastically differs from the character oh, in the book. big time. I think if Connery was here, we would have more of a characterization from that book. All right. I, unsurprisingly, saw this in theaters. I was 16, 17 when this was being touted. And I got to say, I was pretty excited. And I remember, Adam, you remember this. This summer of 93, this, I would get these, these film magazines. 
And I remember this being the summer mm-hmm. that Arnold was going to be taking on dinosaurs. And there was a debate on whether or not Jurassic Park or Last Action Hero will win the summer box office. <laughs> <laughs> and this was released, I think, a week or so before Last Action Hero. And I saw, I saw both in theaters. This was a packed theater that I saw this in. Lots of responses, lots of things I'll talk about when we get into the film. I still remember that theatrical experience to this day. That day, we decided, you know what, we're going to buy Last Action Hero tickets because we think that next week it's going to be even more packed. When we bought those tickets, we went to the theater. I think we were one of maybe six people, and it was opening night. (laughs) (laughs) Adam, did you see this in theaters? This was a theater watch. Um, I want to say probably in two weeks. I had seen this like three times in the movie theater. Uh, I never saw Last Action Hero in the theater. In fact, I've still never (laughs) seen Last Action Hero. Uh, I have the soundtrack, which is pretty damn good, by the way. You know, you got Tesla and Queensryche on a soundtrack. I'm buying it. And Megadeth. <laughs> and Megadeth, yeah. Uh, but this was, it, it was something to see. And yeah, I was, let me see when this came out, 13, uh, 13, 14, 14. So yeah, this was, this was something to see. You know, the advertisement really made it seem like it was, what, 65 million years in the making. And you just, you had to see it. And this was, this was Batman 89 for 1993. Like, this was that summer blockbuster. And, yeah, this was – it was huge. Absolutely huge. Yeah, big-time theatrical experience for me. And even, like, I remember going to some kind of dinner with my dad the week after. He would have these get-togethers at his friend's houses. And we drove up to this one guy's house. And all we talked about at the table while getting food was this movie and the impact that this movie had. And then it was released on video. I got it for my birthday. And me and my dad, we watched it. Dad really liked it. Mom, not so much. Uh, but this, yeah, this was this was definitely an event movie. Now, did anyone go to the 3D re-release when it was re-released in 2013? Yeah, that's the only way I've seen this in Interesting. The so you did go see it in theaters. Well, I always said this is one of those movies I've wanted to see on the big mm-hmm. screen. I, I would have preferred to see a 2D print, but... It, it, it was what Spielberg it was. oversaw that whole thing, and he, you know, he even said that they they added more leaves and things and certain things that they did to kind of enhance the the three the three D vision of it. I did not go see it in theaters actually in three D when it was re released, but I, I remember people kind of excited about it, and that's how this thing crossed the <laughs> the billion mark. Was you know it just kept getting re released. Okay, boys, that is a lot of build up. Kind of like this movie. We we had a whole bunch of advertising leading up to this movie. What do you say we finally dive, start diving into the plot of this, unless anyone has anything else to say? Well, the last thing to note is the gamble paid off for Universal because this movie was not just the highest grossing movie of 1993. It was more than double the movie that finished number two. Yeah. Wow. What was that? So the top five... Spielberg has two of the top five with Jurassic Park and Schindler's List. The Firm was number five, The Fugitive was number three, and Mrs. Doubtfire was number two. Mrs. Doubtfire. Also in the t- yeah, also in the top ten was the Pelican Brief. So John Grisham and Michael Crichton got pretty big checks yeah, this did. year for big mm-hmm. movies. But last action hero <laughs> <laughs> last action hero is probably hundred. <laughs> All right, so we start off right outside Costa Rica. Now we're definitely going to be covering Jaws in the future. Matt already has this on the on the uh, on the schedule. And the reason I love this opening scene of this movie so much is because it's the only time this entire film that it reminds me of Spielberg at its most frightening. We're not seeing any dinosaurs completely clearly, with the exception of some glances at eyes and skin. We're getting some unwarranted illumination from these lights flashing everywhere. Workers being dragged by unseen forces. I, I think this is great stuff. And I, I actually did a school project on the similarities between this scene and the opening scene of Jaws. I had them both on videotape and I played the scenes for the class and cross-examined 
fandom. Of course, I got an A on that project because of the passion I had for it. Uh, this I like this opening scene quite a bit. It's a real good setup here. It's definitely the spiritual successor to Jaws. Don't show the monster. Somebody gets dragged and ultimately killed. Takes place at night. So your school project was kind of low hanging fruit as far as similarities because they're they're pretty <laughs> they're, they're pretty easy to find. I was in high school. Give me uh, a break. So, yeah, I hope you got, I hope you got an A for that. Uh, for that <laughs> I did. Yes. <laughs> um, so this is a right away drastically different opening book. So the book opens with a ER doctor who is brought a patient that is flown in by helicopter surrounded by Jurassic Park operatives who is all lacerated and they're told to treat them. And the guy keeps saying El Raptor, which means bird of prey. So obviously they don't think it's a dinosaur. That, that's a cool opening, but I, I kind of prefer this one better because it's one of the ways that they immediately establish the dinosaurs as even though it's in a cage, they are still able to wind up killing someone, and it foreshadows the intellect of the raptors specifically, which the book really does not. You just see the aftermath. And the scene that follows that is the opening of the second movie with the little girl being attacked by the little copies, Mm -hmm. which are not in this movie at all. There's a lot of dinosaurs that are omitted from the movie that were in the book, and I think that's largely because of budgetary reasons. And I I agree with that, and I also agree with the idea of having this scene first, because we're not going to see any dino action for quite a while after this. This is just to kind of have their presence being felt from the very beginning. My criticism is, it feels like a reshoot. However, it establishes the horror aspect that is prevalent in this movie, the threat of the dinosaurs, because as you just said, we don't get dinosaurs till about halfway through this film, at least as a threat. And we don't get them as a dangerous threat until almost three-quarters of the way through this movie. So without this opening scene, you would have lulled a lot of kids into a false sense of security to have a screaming theater (laughs) towards the end of it. So I think it's important to establish this right away. And the brilliance of the way that it's set, paced, and at the beginning is you forget. You have it here. You know that they're voracious. You know that they're dangerous. And then we get a lot of peaceful dino for a very long time until this comes back around. Now, this book goes into extensive detail, and I think much to its detriment. And one thing I like so much about what Spielberg and Kep do here is condense it. In the book, the chaos is already going on when everybody gets to the island. Here, we're going to be meeting these characters one by one while going to quite a few locations until finally gathering on the island before the chaos ensues 25-30 minutes in. Despite all the script problems we talked about when discussing Crystal Skull, both Kep and Spielberg are wonderful storytellers, and I think this film proves it. The book is very bogged down in exposition about the science behind everything. That That's a huge aspect. But I do like in the novel to play the preference game that the impetus for him and getting all these experts is strictly for the PR, because that girl is attacked on an island where the dinosaurs are not supposed to be. And, you know, he's trying to, to nip it in the bud quickly. You know, this works for the movie that, it's, you know, it's a park employee that's, you know, that family is filing a lawsuit for neglect, basically, safety hazards. It works, but the Gennaro character, this starts a trend, is significantly altered for the movie. He's... He, he's... This is the problem I have with the movie. I'm going to get into this right now. I think the characters are overly simplified to be cheap stereotypes. Of course, the the lawyer is a coward who only cares about money. Um, <laughs> but in the book, he's heroic, lives, 
and fights off a raptor with just a pipe. He is one of the most heroic characters in the novel, and it's the inverse here. I think Spielberg in this movie, it's a, this movie, I'm going to say right now, it's got a weird dichotomy. And I've talked about this briefly on other shows, where I don't think this film knows what it wants to be. The novel is a B-movie-level plot that is bogged down by pseudoscience. I think that is, that is a problem with the book. The movie can't decide if it wants to be an in-depth discussion about nature versus nurture that is whimsical and full of childlike wonder, or a straightforward, balls-to-the-wall, B-level horror movie with some of the darkest shit Spielberg has done in a movie. And I never think it finds that balance. And it starts here with the character of Gennaro being dumbed down to a character that would fit those B-level movies. Back then, in the 50s, you didn't have to worry about characters being that particularly fleshed out. And villains could just be, you know, megalomaniacal, greed-infused antagonists. This is being done by the father of summer blockbusters. This is a summer blockbuster. You have to simplify these characters in this way for this audience. He's not going for the audience that you're asking him to go for, Matt. Now, I have problems with this movie, too, and I'm going to get into it, get into it when I get into them. But again, I want to say that I, I disagree with you on the fact that these characters cannot be simplified. They need to be simplified for the audience he's, he's going for. It's strange because I haven't read the book, uh, but what it makes me think of, and it's David Kep has the same the same working relationship with the Dan Brown novels. So Angels and Demons, Da Vinci Code, yada, yada. Dan Brown's first two novels, which I think are head and shoulders different, and I love the stories behind them, are Digital Fortress and Deception Point. And those are pseudo-scientific books that would have the same feel as these characters apparently would have, where they're much more fleshed out. It goes into the science it goes into the minutiae and monotony behind some of it. And I like it, and I love reading it. But i got to agree, I don't think it would work necessarily on a screen. It would work for me on a screen as an adult. I don't think it would work for me on screen as a child. So I do think, I do think giving it surface and moving it along is the right choice. Because this is not a short movie by any means. And we got to get to where we got to go. My counter-argument to both of you is, and this is sort of my my preference showing, is I can see in my head the James Cameron version of this movie, where Aliens is the perfect example, not just because Cameron referenced it when he said what the, his version was going to be. Those characters are also tremendously simplified, but you get to know them really well. And it's not just the, it's not just the villains who are oversimplified, like the Paul Reiser and everyone who works at the Yutani Corporation. Here, the characters that I think are done the biggest disservices are... The villain characters, mm-hmm. you know, like Gennaro in this. Dennis Nedry is pretty close to how he is in the book. And, of course, the, the big one is Hammond. You know, I have no problem with them making the the main characters like Sadler and Grant. They're not the most in-depth people at all. But in Aliens, you really get to know all the supporting characters like Hudson and Hicks and Bishop. Here, I don't feel like it's as... You know, I don't feel like it's as Wade. And there's a shitload of characters that are in this movie that are prominent characters in the book. And then there's some that are just eliminated entirely. (laughs) (laughs) We get a close-up of a mosquito before we cut to a dig being done by Grant, who declares, I hate computers. And then we see him show up Freddy's son and scare him about the danger of dinosaurs. (laughs) (laughs) Matt, you you recognize this kid, right? Yeah, this is... uh... Jacob from the from the fifth one. Yeah, uh, that that kid's got a very distinctive look, which uh-huh. is my way of calling 
<laughs> which is my way of calling them ugly, I guess. But I love how the most unrealistic thing in this movie is the fact that they find fully formed dino skeletons out in the <laughs> desert. Uh, that scene would make paleontologists have because mm. uh, it is never that easy. <laughs> how do we feel about Grant and Nelly? It won to Matt's point. Yes, that is exactly what bugs me as well. Like so many of the dinosaurs that we know are are finished being put together by hypothesis mm-hmm. and assumption. You know, there are almost no complete skeletons that have ever been found. Ridiculous. Like, you can count them on a hand. So when you all go to a museum of paleontology, you realize most of that is done just with inference. So I think, I think Sam Neill and Laura Dern are fantastic in this. I could see Kurt Russell taking over the Sam Neill role. I really could. But living with these two for the 30 years that I have in these, they are Grant, they are Ellie, they're they're fantastic. I think Laura Dern brings the charm and just a little bit of light, and I think Sam Neill is, he's he's that disapproving dad, you know, throughout. And I think that's shown, you know, from Spielberg. But there's just something captivating about the way they do this, because even when they're angry, even when they're criticizing, it's done with a wink and a nudge. And I think they portray the characters on screen, not having read the book, really, really well. I love them both. Yeah, I have no objection to how they're altered. Because in the book, there's no romantic tension mm-hmm. between the two of them. That That's exclusive to the movie. Grant likes kids in the book, which Spielberg alters. Because he's got a weird thing about not just dads, <laughs> but also dads who don't give a shit about their kids. Even the guys that don't have kids dislike kids. Um, <laughs> uh, my favorite thing about this movie, the nitpick, is Sam Neill's accent goes in and out. Oh, yeah, it does. This is part later on where he says, Ellie, the door locks, that it really comes out. But I, I think they, they both really work in this movie because they sell the holy shit aspects later on, which are drastically needed, or jurassically needed. I, I don't know how else to include that. I'm fine with them simplifying the, the main characters. Like I said, my problem is just more. It's weird that they do that for Gennaro, but he doesn't do it for Hammond because you would think as a as a B level movie, of course the guy who runs the park would be have the insanity and the ego of Doctor Moreau, but not in this movie. Maybe it's how much indie the three of us have been watching, but I couldn't help but see how great Ford would have been in this role. Now I'm not saying Neil is not good; he is very good, but I kind of feel like he's kind of doing a Harrison Ford impression. And kind of Spielberg was just like, "All right, yeah, you do Harrison, yeah, yeah, like that, like that." Well, he's wearing a uh, basically a fedora. Yeah. On the desert, so I, I can see it, but I also like that they don't make Grant an action hero. True. Like, he never picks up a gun or beats off a raptor with a lead pipe. Ironically, Gennaro does that in the book, which which is the, the funniest thing, because mm-hmm. you look at this guy in the fucking movie, like, there's no way this guy can even pick up a stick with a little <laughs> pipe to, to go help somebody. I think Dern's good, too, and I, and I like the story developed here between the, about them fighting about whether or not to have kids. Again, like Matt said, this was done for this movie, not for this book, because Crichton's not about being personal with characters. He just wants to get to the science, and so he doesn't really do much characterization here in, in the book, but here Spielberg just fleshed it out. And that's a trend of his writing as well. He does not – I don't think there is a sympathetic character in no. Michael Crichton. No, in his movies, too. Like, there's no sympathetic characters. It's all stagnant. Well, there are in, uh, you know, there's likable characters in this movie. I would argue Congo has someone who's likable with Ernie (laughs) Hudson, which is the movie, by the way, we're tying into the Patreon, because I wanted to talk about Congo for decades now. 
Uh, that was the movie that was made because of how successful. Yeah, because of this movie. I don't think I ever. I don't oh, think I've ever sat through it. I think I. That was a theater watch. I don't think I've ever sit through sat through the entire thing. We then see Hammond digging into Grant's fridge for champagne. He's dressed in all white, and Hammond is another, as Matt said, different incarnation here as opposed to the book. In the book, he's more cold-hearted. Again, not very likable here. He's the grandfatherly gentleman who has put this park together to appeal to everybody, not just the rich. How do we feel about Hammond here? I'm going to save Matt for last because I'm sure he has thoughts. Adam? Love him. Absolutely love him. I think Sir Richard Attenborough is amazing. He's fantastic. But this is my Santa Claus. So I will watch oh, that's Sir Richard right. do almost anything. And that came out two years later, yeah. but that's my but I also love that version of Miracle on thirty fourth Street. I will, you know, watch him narrate the BBC documentaries in the background for me constantly when I need to relax and read. That's what I'll have on in the background. I know that it's that he's not, you know, that dark Disney type that's you know, that was necessarily wanted, but I think his grandfatherly feel along with his insistence, gives, it makes his actions not malevolent. You know, he's not a villain, but he could be seen as the antagonist behind this all. But he's not doing this for a villainous way, which I think if you cast somebody else, that's what you would get. You know, you get the feeling that he loves his grandchildren and he wants to do this for humanity. And I think for this film, that's needed. So I, I think he's cast amazingly well. And you would never think that he hasn't acted in 15 years. Yeah. You just not know that. Yeah, he's very good. Much like I said earlier, I think there's some contradictions with how Hammond is depicted, even independent of he is this childlike-minded, bewondered person. And he's also, though, they, they didn't want to make him the villain, but because they don't really get into his relationship with Nedry, you would think that he's, like, not paying Nedry anything for him to commit corporate espionage. <laughs> so it kind of comes off as this cold-hearted businessman. I think Ambro is great, independent of the changes to the book. I just think for the, for the type of movie this is, you know, because it is trying to appeal to that blockbuster crowd, I don't think making Hammond the, you know, Dr. Frankenstein or Dr. Moreau or Bob Iger, for that matter, mm-hmm. uh, would have been that big of a shift. I still think that would have fit in the the parameters of this movie with how it's done. Hammond's here to recruit these two to come to the island and convince the lawyers that the park is safe by signing off on it. So he invites them to the park for the weekend in exchange for his funding of their dig for three years. Which and this gets this gets Ellie so excited. She's so happy at this. We cut to Nedry, played by good old Wayne Knight, who has recruited Dotson to get him some sample embryos from the park. Again, here's the mark of some good condensing from Spielberg and Kep, because in the book you had so many things going wrong at the park at the same time, and Ian Malcolm's chaos theory is proven correct. Here, Spielberg has decided to narrow it down to this one greedy villain, and to me, that is blockbuster filmmaking at its best. You can't have all the scientific mumbo-jumbo in this film that is being marketed to kids who will be bored out of their skulls. Spielberg hired Wayne Knight here, whom he'd, he'd seen in Basic Instinct and wanted to work with him so bad, he waited until that film's credits ended and he wrote the name down. I think this gets the job done, and again, I think it's very efficient. Yeah, this is a good example of, of condensing. As far as 
getting all the info where it's like, you know, the doc working for this other guy in and out 15 minutes. The Barbasol can is, you know, that that's been iconic. Mm-hmm. Like I think Barbasol sells as much as they do because of this movie. Yeah. And the brand recognition. I agree. And I criticize product placement a lot, but for some reason the, that they make it integral to the plot, I guess it doesn't bother me as much, but I kind of like the fact that Malcolm is proven correct in the book right from the inception. Cause in, in here it's just, it's the inverse where everything bad that happens is because outside of the opening is because of Nedry's heel turn for lack of a better word. So, so Malcolm being here is just as a, you know, a heart, a potential harbinger of doom, not necessarily cause he's, cause he's proven right necessarily by anything. Cause he says life finds a way, but life only finds a way like the Raptors escaping because the power goes out. I tell you what, if Spielberg doesn't get weekly checks from both Barbasol and Rhesus for what he's done for those two companies, <laughs> there's something very wrong. Adam, how do you feel about this condensing, sir? From a story point of condensing it, it does a really good job. I think it, the exposition in this movie's done extremely well throughout. Like, But this one here, it breaks down everything that's going to happen. My issue is Dogson and Wayne Knight. Like it's just, like this scene feels so out of place. It's like you got into a line for a Jurassic Park ride and ended up over on the Transformers ride. Like it just <laughs> feels kind of disjointed, you know. Wayne Knight's not even playing the same character he did in Basic Instinct. Like I could understand getting that, and he showed up on set as Newman. Like the way that he's chuckling and giggling, and I just hello Nedry. So I appreciate the you know from the story point, but this scene really sticks out is not jiving with the rest. Interesting. So you're saying that Dodson should have been played by Michael Richards. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, God. <laughs> it's amazing this character ends up mattering later, <laughs> by the way, in about <laughs> yeah, 25 and, and years after this film. Yeah, and I guess the guy who played Dodson got busted for being like a child predator. And that's why he's played by, uh, they got a new actor, and he was yeah, a new one. We cut to the helicopter, bringing our gang to the island, and here's where we meet good old mathematician Ian Malcolm, played by the ever-present Jeff Goldblum. Now, I remember this character being a huge highlight in theaters. He had most of the good lines. I found him good. And again, in the idea of efficiency, we get just enough of him here because he is insufferable in the book with way too many monologues. In the film, Goldblum's great, and his introduction, where he just flirts incessantly with Ellie right in front of Grant, makes for a fun introduction. Of course, I'm going to find Goldblum very funny fun in this <laughs> yeah, that's so weird that is the weirdest addition that he did <laughs> um he's he's good and he's used the right amount because i i think a minute more of this jeff goldblum would be insufferable i mean you could scale back 15 percent, he'd be okay i think he's having a field day uh this is why my dad took me to see this movie because he loves The Fly, uh, the, the original and the remake. Like, he had me watch that movie, you know, as a kid. That explains a lot about your dad. Fucking <laughs> A, it does. Um, so, you know, he was excited to see, you know, and I believe he also loved Blue Velvet, so he was excited for the casting of this, and he really likes Jeff Goldblum. I love Jeff Goldblum today. Damn Disney Plus for pulling his show off of their fucking service. But, yeah, he's a good addition, and he's the anti-Grant and Ellie. You know, he's just something different. And he looks cool. He's in that black leather jacket, which has got to be just oppressive as hell going to Costa Rica dressed in mm-hmm. black leather. But, you know, that's all right. We get him shirtless later. But he's just, 
he personifies the cool for this movie. If paleontologists aren't cool, then Dr. Grant or Dr. Malcolm is. Yeah, it's also a weird, again, dichotomy, because the mathematician is the one you make in Black Leather. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, and, and with all those advances he's making towards Ellie, it's a good thing that Spielberg removed and Regis, the parts PR manager from this mm-hmm. movie, because <laughs> uh, there would be lawsuits filed for sexual harassment. He's fine. He's fine in this. I subscribe to outside of the fly, a little Goldblum goes a long way. I think any more, and well, you get next week's movie. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and also, speaking of changes, you know, this character systematically dies in the book. Yes. Which, again, makes next week's movie, and book for that matter, all the more hilarious. Yeah, he has a lot of exposition in the book. He's sort of the, he might as well be a preacher with the amount of sermons he does in, in, in the book. Talking about the dangers of science, but I like that he's there because it's never explicitly said why does Hammond bring in a mathematician just because he needs some kind of expert. This is also where we get the first big set of main keys to this score, once again done by percolated media mainstay John Williams. So, we have done Superman, Star Wars, Indy, now this. Harry Potter. Harry Potter, (laughs) yeah, that was years before, but all this year, and I can safely say... This is the least of the scores we have covered from him. Nothing here really grabs me, and despite the main theme being quite hummable, I am not a fan of this score. What? No. Mm. Top five. Really? Williams. Oh my god. <laughs> I got kids humming this score around the house. <laughs> no, man. Uh, like, like, there's no like yeah. real Jaws theme here. There's nothing that really, really pumps me up in this i mean we have the whimsical we have the oh we're at the theme park so we're gonna make this theme score you know it's the whole i I just i i don't like the way he has turned this whole theme park into the basis of the score i i think that's important i think that as somebody who gets chills when he walks through the turnstiles at disneyland and universal i think it's important i think it's on point and when i ride the jurassic park or jurassic world ride depending on which coast i'm on and those gates open up, and the music hits me when I'm on the ride. I, I, oh God, I think it's wonderful. I think it's great. I've forgotten until this, till this viewing, that the score hits on the helicopter because I thought it was when the gates open, and it's not. But I think this Jurassic Park theme is one of his best. Matt, be the tiebreaker. Well, I could almost plagiarize everything Adam said and probably get sued for that. <laughs> add that, add that to this uh, to this court case of of uh, issues that are in this movie. I think this is one of his his best score. Wow! Collectively, not just the main theme, because uh, I do think it's very propulsive when it needs to be uh, later on in the movie. So yeah, I, I'm in lockstep with Adam. There is no propulsion not done here. Like there's, there's nothing. We don't have a, a Jaws type feel of being scared. We just have whimsical. It, yeah, but that should, that should yeah, and that should appeal to your thing of oh, you got to make it a blockbuster, like you know, appeal to kids. This I didn't say it appealed kids. to me. Yeah, you did. No, I said it appealed to the audience. I didn't say it appealed to me. And I, you know, what I appreciate even more is that he backs off that crescendo when he needs to a little later. So, yep. What is it about this movie that just gets me fighting with my co-hosts? I don't know. <laughs> I wasn't expecting this would be when the fighting would start. Would be the fucking score, especially with that coming on. 
<laughs> they buckle in as they the helicopter heads down, and they're led through 10,000-volt gates and into an open field. And here's where, here's where we are seeing our characters experience their first sense of wonder. As the brachiosaurs, they come crawling into view, and all we can do is look in awe. Let's talk about the effects. The, uh, we talked concepts at the beginning of this podcast, but this is the first time that Spielberg ever did two projects at the same time. Once principal photography this ended, he flew to Poland to work on Schindler's List. And when shooting days over there ended, he would look at dailies of this film and approve them. Spielberg has said the work overwhelmed him so much that there were times his friend George Lucas stepped in to approve effects himself. I feel for 1993 effects, these hold up surprisingly well. Though I can definitely feel the bipolar nature of this film because there are times when it is inconsistent. How do we feel about these effects? So I think for the time, it justified how groundbreaking it was. And I still largely feel it holds up. I think there are parts where you can clearly tell the animatronic versus the effects, but I think they cleverly get around that with Spielberg's shot choices and where he cuts scenes and where he puts perspective. The smartest thing he does in this entire movie and there's a lot you could argue for is that you see the reactions of the characters before you see the dinosaurs yeah i think that is the that is the most important choice he makes uh in everything and these actors sell it perfectly for people who are not you know this is not speaking of er this is not george clooney and you know julia roberts you know it's a good thing that george clooney wasn't at jurassic park because they say their vision's based on movement he can't keep his goddamn head still in the 90s (laughs) he would have been he would have been devoured before they even opened the gates the effect so when i watched this this time i pulled out my jurassic park ultimate trilogy dvd set Mm -hmm. because i realized i did not have a blu-ray or 4k version of this Feel free to send it to me, folks. <laughs> <laughs> so on DVD, still looks fantastic. To the point, I think it's very smart and wise that the far back, the big shot, the wide shots are the CG ones and the up close are practical. I think the wide shots do a great job of hiding the lines and the, you know, the blur lines, the, the staging is done such that you don't see, you know, the, the blue, the green, you know, effects. And agreed. The fact that we see the reaction before, so we're get, we're being told to get ready, and I think it works that way. That head turn when he grabs Laura Dern, mm-hmm. when he grabs Ellie, turns her head. That's such an iconic scene, and it still gives me chills. You know, because just it it gives that sense of wonder, and it works that way. But from an effects standpoint, just astounding, absolutely astounding. And I think it also. The first thing we see is kind of a ho-hum dinosaur. It's a brachiosaurus, mm-hmm. which is amazing, astounding. But as a kid, that's not the one you cared about, but it is no less magical. Grant goes, it's a dinosaur. And Malcolm says, you crazy son of a bitch, you did it. As the dinosaur gets on its hind legs, and this is when Hammond not only reveals that he has a T-Rex, but he also welcomes the group to Jurassic Park. And you better believe that's how I opened this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) They enter the park's museum portion where we get the extinct line that I mentioned earlier, and then we are introduced to Mr. DNA. (laughs) (laughs) Now again, this is a condensed version of the science mumbo-jumbo contained in the novel, and I think this is a good way of giving kids in the audience information without boring them. This is when we're told that ancient mosquitoes have their blood extracted, and this is how we get dino DNA. How do we feel about Mr. DNA, Matt? It's economical storytelling, but as a as a grown man, he gets on my nerves. <laughs> uh, like, like this is clearly the 
if this was a Disney ride, this son of a bitch would be Figment the Dragon. <laughs> Where it's like, I would rather stand in a hot sun than go on that ride. <laughs> um, for uh, just on the record, that ride is called Figment's Journey into Imagination, and we have a stuffed Figment inside this house. <laughs> <laughs> and I love Mr. DNA. Uh, every time we go to Universal, I wear my Bingo Dino DNA T-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking asshole! Um, I <laughs> I truly do. Um, I like Mr. DNA. I think it's cool, but I think it also I think it's important in this film to keep it less than three hours by explaining everything. So I think it's effective in that route. And in this point or in this part, we're really getting the hey, this is a theme park. And we're getting the introduction to this is a theme park. And if you were on a ride at Universal, at Disney, at Knott's, at, okay, Dollywood, you know, this is the type of thing you would get in your pre-show. So I think to that effect, it worked extremely well uh, to, to really convey to the audience like it would be conveying to the theme park goers what is going on. You know who, who would have, you know, we talk about, how exposition is done. If someone was going to literally adapt this novel nowadays, it would be Christopher Nolan and it would be five hours long. We're then taken into the lab and introduced to B.D. Wong's character where they are bear witness to the egg hatching of a raptor. They're so cute at this stage. And this is when the dinosaur effects look the most fake. The placement of the egg changes mm. in between shots. Yeah, too. yeah, I noticed that too. That's like, yeah. yeah, it's like the only big continuity there. But this is also a big change. Uh, Wu is a main character in the book yep. because he stayed behind after a lot of people leave the island. Because in the movie, it's like every staff person outside of the people who work with computers stay uh, stay on the island. Everyone, everyone else in the storms come in. Like Wu stays behind. Uh, Regis, who's the PR manager, and Harding, who's the veterinarian on site, who's with the Triceratops later on, they all stick around. And it's in this scene where they don't see a dinosaur being hatched, per se, but they find an eggshell. Mm -hmm. And that leads them to talk about, like, because Malcolm's part of his theory is that the dinosaurs are breeding against the geneticist design. So you get the reveal that they're organically breeding earlier in the novel. I really like the scene of it hatching. I think it plays into the fun whimsicalness of it all. You know, they have to force themselves to get it off the ride. It's, I like this. It's just, it's hatching. It's a cute little moment. But it, and I think it's necessary for, as I said, for when we see the eggs later, it's necessary to have this to know what's going on. Mm -hmm. It's also the weird, the weird paradigm I talk about where he does the childlike wonder moment with a velociraptor. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We learn that there is no unauthorized breeding in Jurassic Park because all the animals are female. Effect that Mal because we're, we're a Christian park. Effect <laughs> <laughs> that Malcolm does not like and paces over. Hammond says this park isn't being made to cater to the super rich. As the lawyer ponders the merchandise. But Malcolm is afraid that the power he is wielding here didn't take any discipline to attain, and we get the famous line that the scientists never thought if they should wield the power that they have. Great line there. Such a great microcosm, though, for how Disney has handled so many of their properties. As we covered. <laughs> yep. Ellie says that these animals will violently defend their habitat if needed, and Grant also expresses doubts. So this isn't going the way Hammond had <laughs> hoped for, is it, Adam? 
No, and I think that's the thing. It shows that he's, you know, he's got the sense of wonder. He's got the money. He can do it all, but does not understand the ramifications. And it's amazing. I mean, you could, man, the term papers you could write just on the characters alone in this are fantastic. Yep. This is, I think, the closest scene to mirroring what the book is about without taking three hours to explain it. I do think it works, but I kind of wish there was... Like, outside of this and one scene later on, there's not a whole lot talking about, oh, God, we fucked up. Which I, I, One thing I do like in the book is that everything keeps escalating. Like, it gets worse yeah. and worse. Mm-hmm. I feel like this movie reaches a point with how it's done in that once you get the T-Rex, there's really no way to top that as far as the danger scale. They, they try their best, but I, I kind of think the movie... Plays its hand a little earlier than it should have. The book doesn't really have that problem, in my estimation. And they also talk on, in this scene, one thing is the whole feeding it plants that are poisonous to the dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. That's taken from the book, but that's foreshadowing in the book because of something that happens later. Yeah. Here, it's just a line that's dropped to be like, oh, you guys aren't taking the proper precautions. So one point for the book. We are then introduced to Hammond's grandkids. All right. (laughs) (laughs) let's clear one thing up right now yes i was really harsh on teddy from dial of destiny and matt over the years has accused me of not liking kids i'm here to say that is not true in fact the truth is despite the way lex is in the novel i like both of them on screen she's unsufferable on the page She's just like, oh, dinosaurs, cool. Just not giving a shit about any of the wonder in front of her. Just completely unimpressed. Where I come from on these particular kids, though, is the same place the director comes from. At the time Spielberg had made Jaws, he had no qualms about killing a kid on a raft. Very violently. Here, Spielberg is a father, and the picture he has painted here of the wonder and the awe that the park is giving off. His concentration is no longer on the tree outside the window like it was in Poltergeist. Another set of kids I really liked. It's not that I wanted these kids to get torn apart in front of my eyes. I'm not a crazy sadist. But what I wanted was the danger of it happening to be felt. And the truth is, I never felt from this 1993 version of Steven Spielberg that he would actually kill one of these kids. I have pointed out and will continue pointing out instances where I find him to still be a very wonderful filmmaker and a gifted storyteller. But the guy who made horror films and horrific acts that stayed with me since childhood is now completely gone. And that is what was condensed into this whole... Garrett wanted the kids dead controversy when I covered this film all those years ago. I didn't want them killed. I just wanted the danger of it. That's all. So Lexi in the book is, she's also written differently than she is in the movie. Yeah. She's a tomboy. She's, she's sporty. Also the, yeah, she's sporty. So it makes sense that she wouldn't give a shit about these dinosaurs. She's a teenager or, or close to it. So I, I don't mind this change. I also am notoriously hard on child actors because, quite frankly, I feel the bar has been raised. And you can't no longer say that as a, you know, a soft bar. Well, the kids are bad, so I can't critique the movie because of that. I think these kids are actually really good as far as their performances. I can't say I fault Grant for wanting nothing to do with Timmy. Like, I'm on his side because he's like that rancid fanboy when they meet a celebrity and just won't leave them the fuck alone. (laughs) Speaking of Jim Carrey, this is like the prequel to The Cable Guy. In a lot of ways. I don't have any qualms about Heather Wren. I'll disagree with you slightly. I feel like the kids are in danger, but knowing what I know, Spielberg, I know he's not going to kill them off. I do have that problem. I, I know they could be put in danger and he can build tension, as we'll see, but 
I never get the sense that they're they're expendable. My favorite thing of the book is that Hammond knows his grandchildren are missing and presumed dead, finds out that they're alive, sees them again, and berates them for fucking shit up in the park. Yeah. Oh, he's it's a, like, all oh, this is your fault, basically. Yeah, he's a complete asshole in that book. Before I get to Adam, I want to ask you, Matt, what do you feel about the change of Lex from how she was in the book to a computer hacker? Which was also Tim's thing in the book. Yeah. He was in the... So giving that to her is fine. The thing that changes is that Timmy is also the older one in the book. She's the younger one. And I don't even think she's a teenager in the book. She's like seven or eight. But she's Tim's age in the movie. But what I like about this movie, unlike Dial of Destiny, this movie has strong female characters but doesn't feel the need to call it out. I fucking saw that and I thought of you, man. I, I felt that as I was watching it just because we watched that movie so close to this one. Adam, how do you feel about these kids and do you agree with everything I just said? God, I hate kids. <laughs> no. <laughs> I, All right, Mr. Father. <laughs> kids, kids, be uh, kidding, kidding. I think it may be Spielberg's best use of kids in a movie. They have a good place. They move the story along. Neither one of them are overly annoying, and when they're annoying, it's to the character, not to the audience. Yeah. So I think they're cast well, and I think they do a really good job. Did you ever feel they were in danger? I don't think anybody's really in danger in this. Except you know, the I mean, lawyer. It, it, yeah, unless you're the villain. Yeah. Unless you're unless you're a bad person or you work for Hammond, because Muldoon is a good person and he still gets killed. Mm-hmm. As far yeah. as we know. For all we know, he could be abusing animals. You know, he could be doing some Mike Vick shit on Jurassic Park. <laughs> but we're not we're not told that. Um I mean the scene that we get towards the end of this movie, I think is an amazing horror suspense scene. But when they show up, I don't think they're in danger. You know, I don't think they're gonna be killed, but I I'm not. I don't think I'm expected to either. So speaking of these actors, I Lex, whoever played Lexi, I have not seen her in anything really after this movie. Well, she was in Tremors before this, which I yeah, was. yeah, and she was in she was in the sequel to Tremors too. Whereas the guy who plays Timmy, I've seen him in a ton of stuff, mm-hmm. uh, and I I saw Bohemian Rhapsody. I didn't realize he played John Deacon because he looks so much like him. Uh, <laughs> now it's kind of scary. <laughs> um, and he would basically do like, you know, he was a kid actor who worked a lot because he was in the River Wild. Mm-hmm. Speaking of Meryl Streep, uh, he was in uh, Simon Birch, which is one of the worst movies I've ever seen. Uh, they took my fi- they took my favorite novel and just <laughs> they just sodomized it on screen. Uh, so now I know how Stephen King felt watching The Shining. <laughs> I've never seen that movie. <laughs> With all the the Jurassic World movies. Neither of those actors came back. You think they would have been the people that got asked first? Yeah, she actually she actually fell in love with paleontology after this, and she kind of went on a few digs after, and she went on to college, and she she made something of herself. and And he he's actually a Facebook friend of mine, believe it or not. And he's he's kind of an interesting dude. He's definitely worth paying attention to if you see him on social media. Yeah, I, I guess Adam, my point my point was I just don't see the 1993 version of Spielberg killing one of these kids, and 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 that's just the danger that's just not in this movie. I mean, these kids are put in major danger. Don't get me wrong. I just don't feel like you will pull that trigger, and that's the suspense that I felt was missing from this film. You- well, there's only one other movie I can think of where he emphatically kills a kid that's not Jaws. Schindler's List. Schindler's List and Hook. Oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, they killed a lot of kids in Schindler's List, just not on screen. Yeah, for sure. Oh, well, the funny thing is that you talk about how Spielberg made this movie where everything is storyboarded in Jurassic Park. 
Schindler's List was the opposite. None of that was storyboard. Yeah, and he put those kids in Poltergeist in complete danger. That He had one kidnapped for more than half the film. Like, he had that danger in him, and he doesn't have that in him now. Yeah, because you had one kid that got prison raped by a clown. But I think if Jaws gets made for a big audience with a with an eye on summer and PG-13, there's no way it opens with kid dying. No. It just, it just doesn't happen. So I do think this is part of it's a summer blockbuster. You're not going to kill a kid. He was a different filmmaker then, and it was a different time. So, for sure. I'm just saying I miss that dude. <laughs> Tim starts getting on Grant's nerves, and Grant can't escape him, and they are joined by Lex. We see Samuel motherfucking Jackson here, pre-Pulp Fiction. He says, hold on to your butts as the kids and company are sent away in the cars. We get an overhead shot of the doors opening as Malcolm exclaims, what do they got in there, King Kong? Nice little shot there. Nice little homage by Spielberg. I kind of like this. Yeah, and that is the exact King Kong feel. So it's, for those that haven't seen that original, so fitting. Mm-hmm. I like how much Hammond's park is already failing because none of the dinosaurs are out on this tour. Yeah, yeah. So like, it's sort of like, you know, it's it's chaos in the book where it's like nothing. It's like when you go to uh, It's a Small World and none of the animatronics are working. You're just on a boring boat ride. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it's it's basically that. So I like that the theme park that's the one thing they keep from the book where like nothing is working mm-hmm. yeah so let's get to that we're hearing the car talk about the dinosaurs that they should be seeing but none are visible from the car as they drive by and even when the goat is sent to entice the t-rex to come out he's just nowhere to be found and grant makes the point that the t-rex doesn't want to be fed she wants to hunt all of this eventually gets Malcolm to tap the window and ask if the dinosaurs are ever going to be seen in this dinosaur park, to which Hammond says, I really hate that, man. Oh, this made me laugh so hard in theaters. I was rolling at this. We then get Malcolm doing more pimping as he's explaining chaos theory using a glass of water to Ellie. And, of course, these two would go on to have a big relationship in real life afterwards because Goldblum was known for betting his co-stars. <laughs> Alan leaves the car, and, and then everyone follows. All of this is going on as a storm approaches. And it should be said, too, this was filmed right off of the coast of Hawaii, and there was a major hurricane <laughs> about ready to hit, and so a lot of these scenes we're seeing of the waves hitting and everything, that was filmed by the film crew as they were in cover. I love that there's a documentary. I love seeing it. That they, you know, everybody is huddled up in the ballroom of this hotel, mm-hmm. except for Sir Richard, who is like, you know, Fucking, I'm staying in my hotel room. He's staying in his room. But while, yeah. yeah. But while that gets done, Spielberg, the generous, you know, amazing crew, caring person that he was, sends them out to the fucking coast to film. Yep. <laughs> you better get some <laughs> images. <laughs> well, much like Hammond, Spielberg spared no expense. <laughs> <laughs> we are then introduced to the Triceratops. Now, this was a Stan Winston creation. And in earlier drafts of the script, it was sick because it had been give, it had given birth to the baby, who the kids would eventually ride to safety. A version of this film I most certainly don't want to see. Here, the creature got sick from eating berries and rocks and then regurgitating them. How, how do we feel about the inclusion of this Triceratops here? I like that we're seeing them put their actual parts of their profession into work, where like. They recognize that it's, you know, it could be like dysentery or something. They're not pulling science out of their ass with this, which this movie does do early on, where it's like, oh yeah, we just use frog DNA. Fuck it. Go along with it. Like, yeah. But I, I like that we're, this is like the last moment of reprieve before shit literally hits the fan, because we see it figuratively in the next scene, <laughs> which is my favorite gift from this movie is, oh yeah. That's one big shit. Yep. To, to have this moment and to take a moment to breathe, 
you know, to see Alan like laying on it while it's breathing is it's just fantastic. It gives you that sense of wonder. There's something textile there, you know, it's a life-size triceratops, and that's one of my top three favorite dinosaurs. You know, I, I freaking love it. So to see it writ large is just amazing, and I think it's great to bring in this practical and to give the actors something to physically and tangibly touch right here. To Matt's point, yeah, to see them be put their doctorate at work, though I didn't know they were suddenly paleo-veterinarians, but to <laughs> see them, you know, doing some science, though it's not their science, is nice, because it shows them smarter than most of these movies would give them credit for. Smarter than the average bear, for sure. Malcolm explains, that is one big pile of shit, as Ellie examines it, and Malcolm reminds her to wash her hands before she eats anything. <laughs> and this line was a, an ad-lib by Goldblum here. It was not in the script. The storm keeps approaching as Ellie says that she wants to stay with the dino droppings. And then we're getting more shots of Hurricane and Hokey hitting rocks, and Nedry says that he's going to go get snacks. Malcolm. <laughs> this, this is the worst way to try to get, like, so obvious he's up to something. <laughs> or, uh, yeah, this is, okay, everything that happens here in this control room is where I do have an issue, though. For someone who's spared no expense, the only people in there working are chain-smoking Samuel L. Jackson <laughs> and freaking, you know, Nedry, who, like, Spared no expense everywhere but in this room on the people needed to make it work. To me, that's just a contradiction to everything, and every time he's on here acting weird, I think it breaks up the pacing, really. Like, you got to have it, you filmed it, but there's no good place to insert this in the film that doesn't feel like you just stopped on a dime. Malcolm tells Grant that he's always on the lookout for the next ex-Mrs. Malcolm, as he asks if she's available. Like, this is so ballsy. I love this I've character used that in this line, movie. It does not work well. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta say, I've used it too. <laughs> Nedry shuts down a few security systems and takes some embryos and plans his escape as the others are baffled by why he turned the gates off, but not the ones that house the raptors. We learn that the phones are out as Hammond asks where the vehicles have stopped, and we cut to right outside the T-Rex cage. Again, great storytelling here by Spielberg. This is a nice cut. Also, as my favorite grammatical error in this movie, Stegosaurus is spelled wrong on the embryo container. <laughs> well, maybe that was Nedry who put that together. Who knows? The guy doesn't exactly look like he needed a degree to be here. I don't think he had anything to do with the genetics, though. I think he's just the guy that runs the computer. No, but he might be the one who makes the labels. Tim puts on... No, because uh, Tim Watley has the label maker. <laughs> Pull that out of my ass. Nice one. Tim puts on a cool new pair of goggles as he checks on the goat and sees the water shake at the presence of the dreaded T-Rex. An effect that Spielberg thought of while putting Earth, Wind, and Fire, of all things, on in his car and seeing his window shake. Problem was, they couldn't get this effect just right, so they propped a guitar string under the dashboard and the glass and had a guy under there just strum it for the complete effect. Have to say it worked. It was and is still rather effective, and it's a pretty iconic vision from this film. It's one of those where it, it's iconic, it works. It's a shame that it's, you know, spoofed and used so much, so many other places, because it does take away from it a little bit. When you're watching this movie and that sound hits and that bass thumps, it is still so damn effective. Even knowing what's coming, man, it really works. Mm. This is the buildup this movie expertly uses as far as keeping things 
with a lack of suspense up to this point for all to escalate to this sequence right here. It was very smart to not show any real carnivorous dinosaurs outside of a baby velociraptor because it would not, it would have kind of detracted from the, the power that this scene has. Mm-hmm. I guess this is where all the, uh, the electricity went because the power went to this scene. On top of all that, there's tension to when the thing is even going to show up because escalation is going on as now the goat is dead and its leg is on top of the car roof. And then the T-Rex appears, chewing on the goat. Fantastic reveal. And Spielberg was very wise here because we're seeing it from the kid's point of view and the lawyer who has to poop. So he heads to the shitter, and of course Spielberg has no qualms about killing this character on screen. It is amazing that he works out his therapy in character mm-hmm. throughout the movies, vocalized what the lawyer meant to him. This scene here with the, the drop of that, the lamb shank, and, mm. and her goat hawk, and everything else from the moment they're stopped here outside the cage. This is Jaws Spielberg. The reveal, the camera angles, just that slow moving sense of dread. This is him at his best for this type of film, is this right here. It is, but I kind of wish this was the tone of the whole movie. <laughs> not, not that I'm a masochist, but this shows that really Spielberg needs to make a horror movie before he dies. Mm. Like one that's. That oh, is straight, yeah. 100%. I don't care what style it is or what the monsters are, because uh, he can still do suspense. Or maybe he can. It's been 30 years since this movie. But there's a part of me that it's strange that this movie's got the, you know, the childlike wonder. It kind of stopped. Like, it goes away here, but then it, it comes back. Like, I, I find there are some slight tonal inconsistencies that I do have. Whereas the book, this would not feel out of place within the confines of the book. Matt, like it wouldn't feel it wouldn't feel like whiplash. Matt, you've seen Poltergeist, right? Long time ago. Yeah, that's a that's a horror film that he did. He actually shows a guy's face getting ripped off in that fucking movie. <laughs> but I was told Toby Hooper directed that's that. That's Toby movie. Hooper. No. Was, yeah, was, up until the point where Spielberg said, "Oh, get the fuck out of the way! I'm showing you how to do this." God, why have we not covered that fucking series? I love. I I want to cover that series so bad. <sighs> Eventually. Never seen it. Ooh, now the wheels are really turning. The T Rex emerges. And Malcolm is saying in the other car to stay still, as the kids in their car can't keep still or keep the light off. This is the one moment where, like, for the most part, this movie is very good about people maintaining their basic survival instincts, except for this one scene. I don't care that it's kids. They can clearly see the light is making the T-Rex. And even if you don't know, like, its vision is based on movement, which is a, a bullshit fucking conceit, they still turn on the goddamn flashlight. The T-Rex puts its eye right to the window and howls before looking in the car and nudging it with its nose, and then it caves in the roof with its mouth. And this is scary stuff right here, though. I, I Say what you will about the flashlight and everything else and the lights and the movement. This is scary shit when this fucking window's caved in. Yeah, and this is where I think there's a... Not seamless, but this is where Spielberg's really smart with using the animatronic versus the fully rendered yeah. computerized. Like when it comes out of the fence and it roars, there's that POV, there's that full body shot where it's clearly a computer effect, but because it's shot at night, the rain. But then when they do close-ups of the T-Rex on the window or the eye or when it, the head breaks through the glass of the top of the car, yes, that's an animatronic, but it's so convincing and they don't linger on it. 30 years later, never, I'm never taken out of that scene because I know it's a, an animatronic. The T-Rex topples the car and takes out its tires as Grant grabs a flare and distracts it, which Malcolm does as well. And, well, this was also different in the script. Yeah, it's also different in the book. It's um, way different in the book, yeah. Yeah, he runs for cover, doesn't he? 
Yeah, he kind of does what Muldo- uh, what Gennaro does, where he runs to the shitter. Mm-hmm. They keep his leg wound, but he dies from that in the book. Yeah, and <laughs> it's funny because Goldblum got in great shape for this. He worked out hard. So, of course, you know, he, he wants to do this action hero stuff. And, well, this is the scene they gave him. <laughs> <laughs> and it really pissed Sam Neill off because he's like, wait a second, this was my scene. <laughs> so there's a little bit of back and forth there. Grant rescues the kids from the car as we get the famous shot of the T-Rex stepping in mud right in front of them. Just iconic shot right there. I'll say what I will about this movie, but it's filled of, with iconic shots. They... It is. And on top of it, you can see them all. They're beautifully lit. Mm-hmm. They're beautifully shot. And this sequence is a horror sequence shot at night in a rainstorm. And you know what? 30 years later, I could still see it. Yeah. A current movie today, I wouldn't be able to see shit, Boogeyman, because of how a movie would be filmed. So, you know, the the DP, what's his name? Cunley. Cun- uh, Cunley. Yeah, he worked on Halloween. You know, hu- yeah. Huge props for the way that this thing is actually shot, that it's so visible that you could see what's going on. Nothing takes me out of it. Yeah, and this is one of the scenes, though, that's really hindered by 3D, because that, by its very nature, darkens scenes. Mm-hmm. So it's it, this one is really suffers when you watch it in 3D, and it's one of the it's one of the unfortunate. This and the scene with Nedry later on, or all the scares are I'm not going to say eliminated, but there's a slight reduction because it's a bit harder to decipher between the the darkness and that you're wearing glasses on top of that. To go back to Adam, I think for the most part the cinematography of this is kind of underwhelming, except in these suspenseful scenes. When we, when we get to these suspenseful scenes, it, it really does take a step up. And, I mean, 14 years later, we get Aliens versus Predator Requiem, and we couldn't see a goddamn thing in that movie. And the fact that this movie is so clear in what it's doing is pretty remarkable. Yeah, I don't think it's shot with... Uh, see, it's got iconic shots, but it doesn't have Spielberg shots. But, yeah, I still think it's shot very, very well. They get to the ledge of what I'm guessing is a dam of some kind. As Grant swings and the car barely misses them, and the T-Rex seems to be pissed at this as it roars at the camera. Again, another just iconic shot. And, man, the, the, he got those roars. Just it's, it's insane. They did have a paleontologist on set. It examined all these scenes, and they kind of approved them. And there's one scene where he, re- he really didn't like, but for the most part he thought, yeah, this could actually happen, maybe. And we haven't really talked about it, but the sound work for the dinosaurs and in this scene when T-Rex is roaring, it's almost Star Wars-esque in that it drops score just to have the mm-hmm. sound work. And it's really effective here. Yeah, God knows the less music in this film, the better. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Hammond sends Muldoon and Ellie to get his grandkids, and he is just devastated at everything just crumbling around him. Attenborough's really good here because you just feel his pain. Meanwhile, Nedry crashes and is met by a Dilophosaurus. Now, the spitting and feathering of this dinosaur's face is a conceit made by the screenwriters, and the fact that it didn't move was out of necessity because they couldn't get it to. But I still like this scene. I like how Nedry threatens to run it over, and of course, this pisses it off, and he's the one who ends up killing him. And this sends his Barbasol can into God knows where, which I thought for sure was going to be the basis of the sequel. But besides that, like I said, this was a conceit, and I think it fit, because I think this character needed a death like this. Even though Wayne Knight has said that there were scenes in the script where he ran, and he was being chased by this thing, and he got a bigger death on screen, but they couldn't get it to, so we get the spitting effect instead. It works. The scene was going to be even longer. Yeah, it was. Because <laughs> th- this is... I think this scene goes on for too long. And it turns into a fucking comedy. Like a, This might as well be a scene from Seinfeld, where he... Gets it, tried to get it to play fetch. 
He knocks himself out. He gets in the car, and the Dilophosaurus is right there. The only thing that would have made this fully comedic is if the Dilophosaurus said, Hello, Newman, when he was in the car. That's the only thing we could have added. And I'm sorry, it would not have been believable if Wayne Knight was running from a Dilophosaurus. So I'm glad that was removed, both out of necessity and because the thing couldn't move. Damn, my favorite thing about this is these dinos squirt water on me when I'm on the ride at Universal. Oh, that's right. He gets to every time. Yeah. It's, you know, it's a death that he deserves, but he just, because Nedry feels out of place, and I get it, he's supposed to, you know, but it just feels out of place. To Matt's point, yeah, this scene does go on a little too long. He's a little too involved in thinking he's going to get himself out of it. You could have trimmed this a bunch, but it's it's great to see him die. These dinos are kind of cool in their... And what they do, it was set up earlier by, you know, we get the exposition lines of how their venom works. So that's all set up. You know, you get the Chekhov's dino spit. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, for this Barbasol can to be, to to zoom in on it being buried under mud, like that sequel bait that doesn't really happen until the next series of films is, is kind of funky that way because he obviously gave himself the out. Lex tells Grant that he left us, meaning their dad... And Grant assures her that that's not what he's going to do. So we get more of this broken family stuff from Spielberg. Fucking Spielberg. Yeah, <laughs> right? Imagine what his therapy bills have been like <laughs> in the 80s and 90s. Well, that's what filmmaking was for. Remember, he had his heart ripped out. We saw, we saw that therapy on screen. Grant climbs a tree to get Tim, who's scared in the car, so much so that he's thrown up. But Grant tells Tim to give him his hand as he leads him out, and the car starts falling. They climb and swing down until they end up on the ground and the car falls on them, to which <laughs> Tim says, we're back in the car again. <laughs> I don't know, Matt. You don't, you don't like Tim too much, but in the theater I was in when I saw this in 93, he had the lines that got the most response, him and Malcolm. I thought this line was actually kind of funny. I hate to pull this card, but escaping death like that for an eight-year-old kid, I don't think he would have had a one-liner. <laughs> Especially because that kid was barely speaking when he got to him in the in the tree. Mm-hmm. And for the record, they say in the book that he's very good at climbing trees. Yep, they do. Uh, as an actual line. Yeah. Meanwhile, Ellie and Muldoon, they find the remains of Gennaro, as well as a fallen Malcolm, who tells them to remind Hammond how great of a weekend he's had. <laughs> <laughs> they find the other car as well as some footprints as Malcolm sees an impact tremor and gets them back in the car as the T-Rex emerges and he, Malcolm explains, must go faster, a line that he'd say again in Independence Day a few years later because Emmerich loved the line so much he wanted him to say it again. This chase is very exciting, if also extremely unfathomable because, the, like I said, the paleontologist who worked on this film has said that the T-Rex would never be this fast as their legs wouldn't allow it. I think it still makes for some fun, though. And, of course, you know, we get the whole iconic image of the T-Rex being in the mirror and the mirror saying objects may appear bigger than they actually are. I, I find this rather fun. Yeah, I don't need it to be scientifically accurate for how people would uh, suppose that a T-Rex would be able to run. It's a good scene. It's a good action sequence. That that side view mirror is something that still makes me chuckle to this day. It's ridiculously effective. Yeah, it's good. I'm surprised that he double dips on the water vibrating, and it works both times. Do you think that trick would get old after the first? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. I was surprised to see that. Where when Malcolm looks out and he looks at the footprint, the water in the footprint is the thing that's um, that's moving. And I agree with you. I did not remember there being another instance of that happening. Tim says he hates trees, so they're doing the complete opposite effect that he had in the book. But they're safe as they hear the Brachiosaurus sing and emerge as they eat leaves. 
And then Tim gives some dinosaur dad jokes. I wouldn't be caught dead saying these jokes. <laughs> He's fucking 11 years old. Give him a break. <laughs> they fall asleep in a tree as Ellie counsels and, and eats ice cream with a hugely despondent Hammond. This was a tough scene. And again, you just feel Hammond's pain here. Absolutely. it's. I mean, he brings something to this where you feel he doesn't feel evil i mean he really wanted to do something benevolent for for people i think and he's torn apart that it's not going to work grant and the kids they wake up to the veggiosaurus as they call it approaching <laughs> and it's eating leaves from their tree and this is not highlighting the horror of the place but the wonderment again that seems to be the concentration of spielberg here right matt but here on out, the movie keeps going back and forth. It's like a game of ping pong. Much, I think it's balanced much better in the first half. But from here on out, this is where I feel like the movie can't decide if it wants to be a horror movie or a family-family adventure. Well, some of that family adventure happens when this dinosaur sneezes on Lex, because we need, we need more snot humor here. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's snot funny. <laughs> Adam seems to think so. <laughs> you bet your ass it is. <laughs> As a teenager in the theater, I did kind of chuckle at this, but <laughs> as I look at it now, it's like, ah, it's kind of silly. That's the thing. It's lowbrow. It's it's not humor. It's lowbrow humor, yeah. but yeah, you go with it or you don't. It can't be lowbrow humor. They're in a fucking tree. <laughs> <laughs> Grant sees more hatched dinosaur eggs, and he puts together the amphibian DNA they gave them has allowed what Malcolm theorized would happen. Life found a way. But like you said, Adam, we needed we needed the scene earlier to set this up, right? Yeah, or else this would make no sense. You wouldn't understand why it was a big deal. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, Goldblum, he gets a shirtless scene as Hammond and the crew debate shutting down the entire system. <laughs> <laughs> this is like he walked off the set of The Fly to do this. I know. <laughs> <laughs> they sell this merchandise at Universe. They have cookies with this printed on the top. <laughs> There's also an auto you could buy his autographed picture of him. Really? <laughs> like this still framed and he signed it. I know they made tons of memes on this, but I didn't know that he actually sold merchandise based on it. Well, well we also have to talk about this movie is one of the biggest examples of marketing tie-ins in history. Oh, yeah. For sure. Everything from toys to lunchboxes. Like Four. So Four cars. The modern day, yeah, the modern-day machinations of movie marketing. How's that for alliteration, kids? You can trace back to this movie. Meanwhile, Grant and the kids, they run into the Gallimimus stampede. As Tim points out, they're, they're flocking this way. Another famous scene from the trailer as they hide under a log and the Gallimimus go over them. But Spielberg doesn't want the T-Rex to leave your subconscious as it once again makes an appearance and eats a few of these. This is smart because when the T-Rex appears at the end, you think you always should have known. Great how well this is done. I mean, and it's only in this format would it go. Yeah, and this, this scene's only here to justify the T-Rex showing up at the end. If this was eliminated, you'd only have the T-Rex show up twice. Not really. Yeah. It's not. That's not the sole purpose because, again, this was a big scene in that trailer. When you watched yeah. this trailer, this was the scene they showed. And this is also very different in the book. Yes. Uh, instead of this, they get on a raft and have to escape dinosaurs. It's basically the scene from Temple of Doom yeah. after they get off the plane. Yeah, it actually... Um, it, that's why Spielberg didn't include it. He's like, I've, I've already done something similar to this. Yeah, and it, it's, in fact, it's, it seems similar to uh, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull when they go down those waterfalls. It seems like kind of the same thing, which, boy, that worked out well. Malcolm makes the observation that when the Pirates of the Caribbean malfunction, the pirates don't eat the tourists. 
Uh, well, I've heard Johnny Depp will do anything for money in the <laughs> As Ellie and Muldoon, they discover some walkie-talkies and they make their way out. But Muldoon, he concludes that they're being hunted. Ellie, she makes her way into the building as she asks for instructions from Hammond as to what to do next. Meanwhile, Grant and the kids make it to an unelectrified fence, and Grant fucks with them by pretending to be electrocuted himself. <laughs> A scene that I knew Adam would fucking love. <laughs> Who wouldn't do this who hasn't done this to their kids when given the opportunity? <laughs> well, that's just it. This guy doesn't have kids. So the fact that he's doing this is, I guess this means he's warming up to them. Oh, you see his development with the kids from beginning to end. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is part of what's gone through. He warmed to these kids more than Spielberg ever does throughout his old life. <laughs> Spielberg has like six of them. <laughs> doesn't mean he likes them. I don't know. Listen to his daughter's <laughs> podcast. He seems to be a really good father, but she has a... That's one kid out of six. They start climbing as Ellie finds the controls, and it becomes a race to see if they can make it before Ellie turns the fences back on. Tim's stuck as the fences are getting turned back on again, and Grant tells him to jump. I have to be honest, I kind of like this scene. I just hate the end when this kid's hair sticking up and they turn it into a complete joke. That was really silly, but I thought this scene was pretty good. And in a movie that has a lot of pseudoscience that you can justify, this kid would not survive 10,000 volts. No, absolutely not. (laughs) <laughs> it looks comical when he gets shot out of there like a cannon. Uh, I don't think the scene has the intended effect it should have, at least for me, because I also knew, oh, this kid's going to survive this somehow. And I think that's that was what was supposed to happen, because everybody in the theater I was in, they laughed hysterically when we saw his hair, and they laughed hysterically when we saw him being electrified on this fence, because we knew he was going to survive. However, I do love the moment when Ellie says that they're back in business as a raptor appears behind her. With the exception of seeing the baby raptor being born and a little in the beginning, we haven't really laid eyes on a raptor this entire film. And this moment really reminded me of the first time we saw a gremlin in Gremlins, Matt, which was a similar reveal when the gremlin appeared in a cabinet behind Billy. I really did like this reveal. No, this is cool. I think everything with the raptors in this movie is great. Because they are basically the xenomorphs. Yeah. Where are these swift killing machines. And they're foreshadowed constantly. You don't see them in the opening. As they're walking through the park where it's him and Muldoon, he goes, they broke through the fence. Uh, he tells her to run. So they really, much like the T-Rex, they wait to show you. But much like Jaws, that's when it pops its head out of the water while he's throwing chum. You don't expect the shark to appear, mm-hmm. and it does. You don't expect the raptor here, and it does. But poor Sam Jackson gets killed off screen. Yeah. Oh, we'll get, we'll get to that. One of the big criticisms of this film is that there's no real clear villain. In the book, it's clear that it's Hammond, right, Matt? Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, like, it's, he's, it's, he's the villain. It's Hammond and everything he represents. Yeah. Corporate greed, uncontrolled science, like it's all, it's all there. Yeah, so he's the clear-cut villain of the book. Here, there is no human villain, but these are the villains of the story. These are the ones you have to be afraid of. So there's T-Rex, we see it, we see it kind of go after these kids, but it doesn't really go after them for the rest of the film because it ends up being the hero of the story. We'll, we'll get to the end, but I, I, I like the fact that these, like you said, Matt, they've been foreshadowed this entire film, and here is when we get the clear picture. Yes, they are the villains. One thing that has bugged me since I was younger is the changes to Velociraptors for this movie. It's almost like somebody, you know, went to Spielberg and was like, this isn't what raptors are. He's like, I don't care. I want them to look like this. I want it. So I'm going to say that that's always bugged me because they make a joke about them being chicken-sized at the beginning. Guess what? That's what Velociraptors are. But I think it's very well done. I think suddenly you have a late – it's Bruce from Jaws. 
You know, suddenly you get this late introduction of your horror villain and you finally get to see what's going on, bring them out, and it's really well done that way because if you haven't seen this movie, you know, and 30 years later we've all seen it a number of times, you may not know this is what's going on. You know, the first time that you're watching this, you don't know Velociraptors are suddenly going to show up and be the slasher villain at the end of the film, but that's what they are, and it's really effective. Ellie's getting chased, and it famously comes across the arm of Sam Jackson's character. Now, Jackson was pissed at this because apparently he also had a massive death scene in the original script that was condensed to this because of time constraints. But yeah, he was going to get chased and get torn to pieces too. That's right. Just wait. That same arm gets cut off with a lightsaber in it. And look, Deep Blue Sea made up for this. Oh, positive. Yes. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I think that was part of what he told Randy Harlan. He's like, kill me off in spectacular fashion because I didn't die on screen in Jurassic Park. And this is in the book like where they're all hauled up in that bunker. Raptors break in and kill Arnold. They kill Wu. Mm-hmm. So th- this whole thing of them just being locked up in a room. I never feel though like Hammond and Malcolm are in any danger though. Because it's like, oh, oh, we're, we're safe in here. Like in the book, it's almost like Assault on Precinct 13 with the Raptors trying to break in. Muldoon gets taken out in grand fashion as he utters clever girl when he sees that they've outsmarted him. Another famous line from this film. This is the best change in the uh, in the process because you've got rid of the one character who has a firearm and seems to be the most capable physically. Mm-hmm. Yep. We see a snake slither past a raptor's face, which was an interesting shot. They revive Tim as Grant leaves to get him toast, as he says. But Tim finds what he really wants, candy and cake. Which, man, as a kid, that would have been, oh my god, that would have been so devoured. (laughs) Grant finds Ellie as she's limping up a hill in a shot that I saw as a nice homage to Spielberg's friend Toby Hooper's Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I don't remember this shot being like this, but that's, that's what it reminded me of. What about you, Matt? She's also dressed like Laura Croft before Tomb Raider was a thing. Yeah, in fact, I believe the creators of that game have said this was the inspiration for that character. Yeah, because how how old is the first Tomb Raider game? 96. Oh, wow, is that? Yeah. Not that much later, but still. Mm-hmm. But as the kids are digging into the green jello, there appears to be some more raptors. Another great reveal as its shadow appears on a wall where there are drawings of the raptors and it breathes into the door window. Adam, this is more built tension, huh? It is, and it's done fantastic. One, that jello is great. I love the recreation of it that she just mm-hmm. did. There's something, it's, that tension is heightened. You know, you think you get a little bit of a reprieve, but this confined, close area, it's a, it's a cabin in a woods type of moment. I mean, that in the, in overall sense, not in that specific no, no, I know, Goddard I know movie. What you're this is a complete horror sequence that's going on right here, and uh, it's wonderfully done. We see that they indeed have figured out how to open doors, and they stalk the kids in the kitchen. They do an odd call out to each other as Lex is caught. This is really weird when these raptors start doing this calling. <laughs> Just wait. Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, stop. The kids start crawling and knock some pots and pans and utensils off the wall as the raptors run into a reflection of them, which I thought was actually a pretty good shot, and they make their way into the main room. What surprised me is I forgot how much actual puppetry is in this mm-hmm. scene. I thought I for some reason thought this was mostly CG. And one thing, the raptors are made to be predominantly intelligent, but they still get tricked in this scene, which is weird, with the reflections. And B, thank God there's no gymnastics. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> That's all I will say. Oh, <laughs> God my... damn, I forgot. Mm. 
It's to me, it's crazy how well this scene works for things that aren't really there. Like everything in this scene for a thirty-year-old film still feels like you have real raptors on set with these characters, mm-hmm. and that's just a testament to the people that worked on this. They go to the control room as Lex goes to the computer, and of course, she's the one who rescues them by securing the locks. She's a hacker. Mm. Because in the 90s, everybody was a fucking hacker. Oh, yeah, she grew up to be Sandra Bullock in the net. <laughs> yeah, these two, Google up, it. these two grew up to be Angelia Jolie and Johnny Lee Miller. Oh, my God. Grant calls Hammond to tell him that the kids are safe as the raptors attack again, and they try to make their way through the air vents. Nice little shot here from up on the air vents as a raptor falls and jumps up and tries to bite the kids. That was a really nicely done shot. I forgot about that shot. How was that in 3D, Matt? It worked. Yeah. You know, that, that, that scene feels like it was added in later for the 3D conversion, but it, it was always there. It was always there, yeah. They make it to the front lobby as they're cornered and hanging from the T-Rex fossil. And wouldn't you know it, here's the T-Rex itself <laughs> to save the day. This was changed at the very last minute. All of these raptors were going to be impaled by the bones on the fossil. But Spielberg wanted one more triumphant moment for the T-Rex. And let me say, the whole theater I saw this in erupted when this happened at my initial viewing. It worked. And the shot of it howling as the When Dinosaurs Ruled the Earth banner falls around it is one of the, no pun intended, banner moments of Spielberg's career, I think. It's a great shot. You don't expect the way that it's going to happen. You know, it's this is another thing that was set up. You forget about. It comes back. And it's... You turned potentially, and it what this was the center villain of this story was this T Rex from everybody trying to escape it, and it shows up to be quote unquote the hero and savior of the day at the end. Who does that? You know, it's a great choice to add this in. We needed more with Rexy, and it's a fantastic way to finish this out. I fucking hate this teleporting. <laughs> I fucking knew you would. <laughs> teleporting quiet footed T Rex that you know, this thing should have been like the goddamn Kool-Aid man when it comes in. Just, you hear nothing, you hear, oh yeah. I don't like the decision to have a heroic dinosaur, because these things should be chaotic. And the T-Rex should still go after them if they're trying to leave, not pose for a goddamn money shot. Oh, that would have been great. Save them to eat them. <laughs> yeah, because they tease that. It, does, it doesn't want to feed, it wants to hunt. Yeah, uh, I, 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 hate, I hate the last five minutes of this movie. I hate, I hate it so much. Wow. I needed some insulin to stab myself with this last scene on the helicopter. (laughs) All right. We're seeing Hammond look at the trapped mosquito in his cane as the kids are asleep in Grant's arms. And Ellie's looking at him ever so lovingly. And Grant looks at what, to me at the time, looked like pterodactyls flying outside his window. (laughs) (laughs) Malcolm, of course, is just kind of there. He's just kind of looking out the window just like, okay, let's let's just get the fuck home. I'm I'm tired. I thought this was okay. A good way to end this, you know, it's a good way to end our character's stories in this film. Matt obviously does not. Adam, what about you? Yeah, I mean, it's to to take something that that Matt likes to say, like it's saccharine in its, you know, sugarness, happy-go-lucky ending here, but I think it works for what's going on. This is a happier Spielberg, even though he put so much horror into this, so it ends on that Amblin type of ending. And then credits roll on Jurassic Park. Well, we got to talk about the ending of the book. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Oh, God. Yeah, go ahead. So, A, Hammond is killed. Yeah. The big thing is that they realized that the computers did not include newborns in their estimation as far as the population. So they're like, oh, shit, the the dinosaurs are going to get off the island. 
So to counteract that, the Costa Rican Air Force comes in and napalms the entire island. But oh, dinosaurs, dinosaurs are still able to get off, though, because they find out that they've been reintroduced into Earth's ecosystem, while at the same time, all the survivors are detained for questioning by the government. So it ends on a, on a oh-shit kind of note. There's not an ounce of real happiness in the ending outside of characters living. Obviously, Spielberg would not have done that ending because he left his balls at it during his divorce. I guess he gave those up. <laughs> yeah, you know, I get why he does it here because that, that would not have fit the context of this movie. I just prefer it more because life, literally, life finds a way. They try to destroy it with napalm and they still get off the island. Scale of 1 to 10, what do we give Jurassic Park? Adam, you first, sir. This is a film that I saw it in theaters way back when, multiple times, and then didn't see it for quite a while. I had revisited it every now and then on VHS when DVDs first came out. So I've seen it a few times, but it's been 30 years. And then I reintroduced this movie with my kids. And, you know, with kids, dinosaurs, Godzilla, King Kong, those type of things. And my kids absolutely love and devour this movie as well. You know, showing it to my son, and for four days, you know, in the backseat of the car, I got to hear, you know, he's singing along. So I do think this is one of those multi-generational films that amazingly still sticks around to this day and still matters. I go to the theme park. I love riding the Jurassic Park slash Jurassic World ride, depending on where I am. The making of this film is superb. I think this is the that Spielberg needed. I do think this film helped Schindler's List be as successful as it was. I know that may be controversial, but I think he needed a blockbuster-type status to go back to that type of emotional, powerful, you know, storytelling movie that that one is. I think the casting across this movie is pretty dang top-notch. You know, you could have done the ooh this, ooh that. We did that with Indiana Jones, uh, where some other people could have done it, decently well, but I think Sam Neill, Laura Dern, Jeff Goldblum, and Richard Attenborough are just phenomenal at the roles that they play here. What this movie did for effects is nothing short of phenomenal. Like I said, go watch the every documentary on the making of this film. Go watch the ILM part that focuses on this. You know, you literally took practicals into computer animation and then still had to use the practicals to make the computer animation work right. It's it, it's something to behold. This movie, it holds up today. You know, it doesn't look like it was made in 2023, but it still holds up as a amazing piece of filmmaking. I absolutely adore this film. It is blockbuster movie making. Um, yeah, there's some story elements that make you go, eh, could have done this, eh, could have done that. But this is, to me, that prototypical summer blockbuster. Get the whole family together. Get grandpa, get mom and dad, get the kids, and go enjoy a giant film that is 65 million years in the making. It's not perfect, but it's damn near there. This first Jurassic Park is a nine for me. Wow. Nine for Mr. Bunch. All right, Matt Goudreau, you go ahead and go, sir. Four on ten. (laughs) (laughs) I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Or, or am I? That remains to be seen. This is one of those movies that I think is one of the great identity crisis pictures that you will find. I can't 
emphasize enough how much I feel like this movie doesn't 100% know what it wants to commit to. Between some of the best suspenseful sequences that Spielberg has ever shot, I don't mean to do all of this alliteration, everyone. I apologize. And then also there's there's those moments like the sneezing Brachiosaurus or snarky one-liners. That I, I don't want to call it a compromise because he's appealing to a blockbuster demographic, and I understand that rationale. But at the same time, for someone who was really involved in the process, I don't know how much of Crichton's actual, like having read the book, how much of the, the, the DNA was actually implemented into this movie. A lot of this feels like it was injected with frog DNA and kind of became its own thing. It works for what it is, but it's not entirely, for me personally, what I want. I think I would love the James Cameron version, but that's my, my personal bias showing. And it's hard for me to separate the stuff of Spielberg that I don't care for with some of his decisions around this time. Is it awe-inspiring? Oh, absolutely. Like Everything with the dinosaurs as far as the animatronics and the, the, the technological aspects still works 30 years later. But for a blockbuster, I, I do think some things are overly simplified. I think there are some course corrections and cuts to the characters that I don't feel work 100%. And I have to call foul on Spielberg making some of the characters less interesting than they are in the book. Not that the book is all that concerned about character development. It's still eminently watchable, and I get why so many people adore this movie. But I don't think it's the best movie in the series, so we'll have that fight later on. Uh, but as it stands, it's a six and a half on ten for me. Six and a half from Goudreau. You know, Matt, if you want that James Cameron version, there was a movie that was released the same exact year by Roger Corman starring Laura Dern's mom called Carnosaur. Carnosaur? Yeah. Well, that that book, ironically, there's a novel called Carnosaur yeah. that predates the Jurassic Park mm-hmm. novel. Uh, and it's so funny that there was a movie that was a knockoff of Jurassic Park. I mean, look, this is not... Carnosaur is a terrible movie, but I, I, I do enjoy watching it. <laughs> it is pretty awful. And, yeah, and it's funny. It stars the mom of one of the stars of this film. You know, once I got past the fact that I was not going to get the Spielberg I loved so much growing up, I wasn't going to get the sadistic guy who had a heart ripped out in a series we just covered. I'm not going to get the guy who put little Carol Ann in danger in the first Poltergeist. We're not getting the guy who killed Alex Kittner in Jaws. We're not getting that guy. We're getting 1993 Spielberg, a more seasoned director. And you know what? He's not a terrifying director anymore but he's still a very very good one this is blockbuster filmmaking this is steven spielberg working with a major budget and he has to cater to those those people he has to cater to that studio but he's also giving quite a vision of his own i i I gotta say i don't think i gave him credit the last time i did this series as far as how good of a filmmaker he really is because despite not having those instincts anymore he's still a really good filmmaker he still makes extra good tension and i had a better time revisiting this this time than I did when I first watched it all those years those years ago. It's definitely not perfect though. There 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 are instances here, there are character traits, there are developments that I have pointed out in this podcast I'm not a big fan of. But as far as tension, as far as the way Spielberg can frame a shot and make us still feel our knuckles turn white, I, I think it works. Now there is some of that theme park aspect of it, a lot of which John Williams caters to, which is why I call this the lesser of all the scores that we have covered of his. But the sense of wonderment had to work for its time, and I'm going to give it that conceit. 
I'm not going to go quite as high as Adam, but I'm going to go 8. 8 out of 10, I think this is still a relatively good watch. And if I had kids, I would definitely show this to them. I think it's a good introduction to dinosaurs. I think that far off shot of those dinosaurs walking that water is something that, you know, if you if kids see that, they would want to know more about what, what, what these things were. So, yeah, 8 out of 10 for me for Jurassic Park. But what about next week's movie? The Lost World. This movie comes out, is a massive success. Spielberg asked Crichton, I know you killed this island, but... Write another book, because I want to make another movie. He does, and then the next week's movie is the result. How much of that book ends up in that movie? We'll talk about that next week. I don't really remember too much of it. I don't remember good feelings, but I do remember a theatrical experience that I will talk about next week that actually ties in with another retrospective we are doing, actually. (laughs) Stay tuned for that. But Adam, what do you remember about next week's film? So next week's film, Lost World, I've only seen it once. I think it was after it came to home video. I remember more about the news stories that Michael Crichton was writing a sequel just so that there could be a sequel to the movie. Like, I remember that being a big deal. But the only thing that I remember is that it's got Jeff Goldblum and a gymnastics-loving daughter. That is the only thing I remember about the lost world. So I'm, I'm, I'm interested to go back and see it because what I remember, I don't think is what they want me to remember of that film. Matt, what about you? <sighs> you didn't think I was glowing about the first one. What the hell do you think I'm going to say about the second one? <laughs> uh, and, and based on what I've heard, it sounds like exactly what happened when Thomas Harris was commissioned to write Hannibal. He had no interest in doing it. It just did it for the money. And we got that movie. This sounds like the precursor to that. The best thing I remember is the arcade game, that the light, the light rail shooter that came out alongside this that I played incessantly. Mm-hmm. And that's the only positive I can remember. But it's been a very long time since I've watched The Lost World. All I remember is the scene with the trailer. Mm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely things to talk about next week, but we have so many other things on the site. We've got probably Mission Impossible coming out a little later than expected, it seems. Me and Matt got that message today, but it'll come out. It'll come out eventually. And so many other things. I mean, my God, this this site's just doing a lot of things. Football season's coming up, so I'm sure Matt's going to be chomping at the bit to talk about his Jets and how Aaron Rodgers is going to be doing as his quarterback. And so... Definitely lots of exciting things going on with the site, and I appreciate you guys helping me out with all of it. But until next week, when we talk The Lost World, Jurassic Park, Hammond, after careful consideration, I've decided not to endorse your podcast. Thank you, gentlemen. Yeah, don't you see the danger, uh, John, inherent? in what you're doing here. Genetic power is the most awesome force the planet's ever seen, but you wield it like a, a kid that's found his dad's gun. It's hardly appropriate to start hurling generalizations. If I may, um, I'll tell you the problem with the scientific power that you're, that you're using here. Uh, it didn't require any discipline to attain it. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Three Men in a Retrospective Podcast. See? Not so bad. Join us next week for an entirely new review. We need more. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please take a look at some of our other retrospectives where we delve film by film into such other franchises as 
Star Wars, Indiana Jones, the films of the DC Universe featuring Batman and Superman, Pirates of the Caribbean, Avatar, the films of Martin Scorsese and Leonardo DiCaprio, and so many more. I don't believe it. You're meant to come down here and defend me against these characters, and the only one I've got on my side is the blood-sucking lawyer. And if you would be so kind, please take a moment and give us a positive review and rating on your podcast platform of choice. What are you looking for? It truly helps others find and discover our podcasts. This is how you make dinosaurs? No. This is how you play God. The Three Men in a Retrospective podcast is produced by Garrett, Matt, Adam, and Nathan. You recording this thing? Edited by Garrett. Surprise! What people can do when they when they have to. Voiceovers by Adam. Where's the wreck? Is it still behind us? The Three Men and a Retrospective Podcast is for review and discussion, and all clips, music, and audio cues are used as such. Goudreau, give me a countdown, and uh, we'll get going. I'm not going to say, all right, you want to fuck it, hold on to your butts. Three. <laughs> like it's there. I'd rather say it now than when we're recording. <laughs> Some people are light years ahead of the other. <laughs> the other. And Keanu Reeves gets a lot of shit. I think Winona Ryder is even worse. Ooh. Ooh, fighting words. Fuck you and your Ryan Gosling. Um... <laughs> hey, we got Barbie coming out. Week. Could be both. So, that, for the record, if that was Jake Jalen Hall, I'd be camping out in my tent waiting to see that movie. <laughs> Pit while pitching that tent. <laughs> Spielberg brought in our buddy Matt David Kep. He brought him on fresh off Death Becomes Her to kind of re. Oh. <laughs> That's a 
That's a great movie. I will find I, it. I'm with Matt on this. Of, I love that movie as well. Uh, isn't that the one with um, Goldie Hawn and uh, Meryl Debbie Streep? Goldie Hawn. Oh, yeah. That's a one if I'm being generous. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I think oh. I take, I take, I like that Zemeckis movie more than any of his Back to the Boy. Future movies. <laughs> I don't know if I'd go that far. <laughs> how exposition is done. If someone was going to literally adapt this novel nowadays, it would be Christopher Nolan and it would be five hours long. <laughs> Jesus. It would also be really, really dark. <laughs> yeah. And it, but it, it, would, also, be, it would be told out of sequence. Yeah. And for the record, I don't know if Christopher Nolan has ever smiled in his life. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God knows he doesn't care about kids. <laughs> They think they're more civilized and oh, never mind. I'm not going to make another. I made a, a, a really bad woman joke in the <laughs> Indiana Jones podcast. I'm not going to do that here. We then. <laughs> but Malcolm is afraid that the power he is wielding here didn't take any discipline to attain. And we get the famous line that the scientists never thought if they should wield the power that they have. Great line there. Such a great microcosm, though, for how Disney has handled so many of their properties. <laughs> As we covered, <laughs> yep. Disney says... Uh, Disney. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Interesting Freudian slip there. Ellie. <laughs> Ellie says that... <laughs> Whereas the book, this would not feel out of place within the confines of the book. Matt, like, it wouldn't, feel like, it wouldn't feel like whiplash. Matt, you've seen Poltergeist, right? Long time ago. Yeah, that's a, that's a horror film that he did. He actually shows a guy's face getting ripped off in that fucking movie. <laughs> but I was told Toby Hooper directed That's that. That's Toby movie. Hooper. No. <laughs> a, yeah, a, up until the point where Spielberg said, oh, get the fuck out of the way. I'm showing you how to do this. God, why have we not covered that fucking series? I love. I, I want to cover that series so bad. <sighs> Eventually. Never seen it. Ooh. Now the wheels are really turning. The te- watch, the, watch the trailer for the remake. It's got the, the hardest I've ever laughed at a movie theater at a trailer when the girl gets dragged invisibly up the stairs. I spat out my coke. I, I laughed so fucking hard. <laughs> Don't even think about that. And I didn't take you as a spitter. The, oh, Jesus. Don't even think about no, that. No, but there's spitters in this movie. <laughs> we got we to gotta do that series eventually, Matt. If they ever make a new one. Uh, the T-Rex emerges. <laughs> and wouldn't you know it, here's the T-Rex himself to save the day. T-Rex itself. I was about ready to say that. Here's the T-Rex itself <laughs> to save the day. <laughs> but until next week, when we talk The Lost World, Jurassic Park. Hammond, after careful consideration, I've decided not to endorse your podcast. Thank you, gentlemen. Okay, so Lost World. Uh, what day's best for you, gentlemen? Never. <laughs> it's <laughs> in this movie. <laughs> 